Hi, and welcome to this alternative audio commentary on The Godfather, the 1972 seminal picture directed by Francis Ford Coppola. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of The Godfather to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown here in just a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. I'm watching a Blu-ray, and there is a Paramount Pictures logo that comes just before the start of the movie. When that Paramount logo fades to black, as soon as it fades to an entirely black screen, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, and that will allow us all momentarily to hit the play button together and watch the movie in perfect, synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, just after the Paramount logo has faded to black, looks like it's exactly 23 seconds in on my Blu-ray. In a moment, I'm going to say 3, 2, 1, play, and that will be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. Just a couple preliminary comments before we get into the movie. Just wanted to say uh, thank you to Tommy, a very nice guy who emailed in and suggested this movie. Uh, actually, uh, he suggested, he had a list of about five or six uh, movies that he thought would be great candidates for a commentary. And the reason it's taken me this long to accommodate his request is because I have uh, been agonizing over which of the several movies he suggested, which one I should go with first, because they were all just uh, movies that I liked and movies that I'd love to do a commentary for, and, and so it just became a matter of, of uh, choosing the first one. So again, thanks Tommy, and I went with The Godfather because I think I can fit it in, because I, I love it, obviously, but uh, I think I can fit it into uh, sort of an ongoing uh, conversation uh, that certainly didn't originate with me, but something I've been ruminating about uh, during some of the commentaries and uh, going back and forth with people on, on email and on Letterboxd and even on, on Facebook, uh, just about uh, classic movies and, and movies that uh, stand the test of time, as they say, and become very revered and beloved. Uh, what is it about a movie that makes it beloved? What is it about a movie that uh, makes it hold up? And what is it about a movie that uh, sears it into the cultural memory? And uh, The Godfather is one of those movies that even people who have never seen it can quote from it. It's sort of uh, like The Wizard of Oz that way. It's just, it's just uh, tattooed onto our cultural memory. So, I thought, why not? Uh, at any rate... Oh, also, uh, let me just say that the Godfather is one of those movies that has plenty of, it's had whole books written about its production and how it was made and, and, uh, and analyzing it. And in addition to that, there's Francis Ford Coppola's own audio commentary, which is, which is very good. And, uh, and all his commentaries are good. He, he has one uh, on Apocalypse Now that's particularly fascinating. But in addition to that, there's uh, several uh, fan commentaries and other fan commentaries and other alternative commentaries out there, too. So 
like I've done with some other movies that have had uh, sort of a lot of supplemental uh, material on them, uh, I will try not to tread over ground that's been trodden by others. Uh, I'll sort of presume that if you're listening to this, you uh, know some of the uh, some of the bigger nuggets of uh, background on the movie, uh, some of the more well-known factoids, or that you're familiar with the movie in general. And I'll try to plug in, I, I do this with all the commentaries anyway, but I'll, uh, I, I won't say subjective, but I'll try to plug in my own kind of take on the movie and my own kind of uh, uh, how I think about it and, and definitely uh, uh, what I think about it. Uh, so it should be it should be a pretty cool commentary. I certainly love the movie. So, without uh, uh, further uh, preliminary remarks from me, let's get started. I'm without a remote control once again, uh, but uh, it hasn't been too much of a problem because I've been able to to boost the audio in in uh, post when I make the MP3. So, um, you'll hear my voice a little bit uh, faint in the background, or a little I should say a little thin in the background, but it hasn't been uh, any kind of a problem at all for people so far. So, uh, uh, but I should really find that remote or solve the problem another way, but, uh, thanks for your patience. And, uh, so I'm going to get up out of my throne here and, and hit the play button manually. Uh, listen for my countdown. Here we go. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one, play. And we're in. Even though I've got the sound turned down, oh, Paramount Pictures Presents is on the screen now. Just faded away if you're trying to make sure you're synced up. Mario Puzo's The Godfather on the screen now the title card. I've got the sound turned down, but of course, uh, during those first couple or those couple of title cards over the black screen, we would have been hearing the wonderful, uh, award-winning, uh, main theme of the Godfather score, the, uh, very operatic, uh, just beautiful, um, uh, Coppola's own father, uh, worked on some of the music and and has a little cameo in the movie. Uh, but worked on uh, worked on the music uh, in the movie. Coppola uh, with that title card, Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Coppola is um, one of those directors who uh, I think he comments on this in his own commentary. He makes makes uh, a point of including the authors or the author of the source the source material. Uh, in the title of the movie, so Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, and so forth, uh, John Grisham's The Rainmaker, which is nice. Uh, Puzo, of course, worked with Coppola on the screenplay, and I'll be, I'm sure I'll be touching on that. The first shot, uh, the famous first shot, Gordy Willis, um, you know, if there's a great movie, uh, if you have a, a favorite movie, uh, of the 1970s, um, uh, or some of people's um, uh, most uh, 
uh, loved movies of the 70s, chances are Gordy Willis shot it, whether it's Annie Hall or All the President's Men or Godfather. And uh, it's just beautiful what he does with light and shadow and uh, particularly contrast. The famous opening shot here, as I watch it, it, I never get sick of uh, this opening shot. Uh, you probably, uh, if you're into the movie, you're probably aware that this was an early use of a computerized zoom, uh, which allowed the camera to zoom back at a very slow, almost imperceptible speed from Bonacera, this character, who is the undertaker and associate of the Godfather of Don Corleone. For justice, we must come, we must go to Don Corleone, he says. As I watch this shot again, I've, you know, with television uh, and, and AMC always replaying The Godfather now, I must have uh, seen this movie uh, dozens of times. Uh, I, I can't change the channel whenever it comes on television. It's one of those movies. As I watch this shot again, it occurs to me that we, you know, Coppola is giving us the point of view of the Don. And that's not a point of view, or the camera accepts the Don's point of view. That's not a, a point of view that we get very much in the rest of the movie. It's more of an omniscient, an omniscient way the camera's used. But I like that use of it right at the beginning to, to almost let us see what, what Don, the Don sees. The cat, of course, was an improvisation by Coppola. The cat was around on the set. He th put it in uh, Brando's arms. And so you get this adorable little effect. And it has a, a kind of a thematic thing to it, too. The, he, he, um, the black hand of the mafia. The, the Don could be vicious. Uh, the mafia could be ruthless. I mean, this man, Bonacera, is asking them to, to do murder, as, as the Don will say in a moment. But at the same time, he could, he, he, uh, his death scene is, is a scene in which he's being gentle with a child. He's being playful and, and loving with his grandson. Uh, here he's being playful and loving with an animal, a pet, as that dainty rose on his lapel. Not dainty, but the, that beautiful rose on his lapel. So the, the relationship between uh, tenderness and, and, uh, and brutality is part of what Coppola goes for in the movie. Of course, the novel was uh, different from the movie in ways, especially in terms of, of tone, and I'll... I'll uh, comment on that uh, coming up. The Let me start with uh, this observation before I get into uh, some of the broader things I have to say, uh, just because I want to say something about the opening scene here. Very, very uh, important to sort of note what Coppola does with um, this movie, uh, like a movie that came out a couple years later, Chinatown. Uh, this movie is something where, where, you know, it's like the Native Americans with, uh, I, like, I love this moment here, and then they would fear you, he's going to say. It's just a great, one of Brando's great little moments. Um, but it's just, you know, nothing is wasted. No character is there for no reason. Uh, no 
um, uh, no line, uh, almost no line of dialogue isn't isn't uh, resonant or or useful with some other plot point down the road. Or everything has everything lines up with something that's going to come. Even Sunny in the background there, looking on. The uh, you know, in terms of the thematic, I mean, this movie, people talk about the theme of, of you know, the American dream and that whole thing, but I, I think it's much more, I've always looked at the movie as much more philosophical. I mean, here's Don Corleone, uh, Vito Corleone, played with wonderful uh, style by Brando, all of these little ticks and this sort of slow motion way that he moves and... Um, Here's on the day of his daughter's wedding, he uh, is uh, almost practically obliged to do, uh, it's interesting that he says we're not murderers, uh, he's obliged to do favors for people, and people ask him, and this man, Bonacera, comes and, and says his daughter was raped brutally, I mean, he describes a brutal crime where they made her drink, drink alcohol and, and brutalized her, these, these men, and then the judge uh, basically threw out, uh, threw out the case. Uh, and he says, for justice, we must go to Don Corleone. So, so in terms of, you know, what this movie will be about here, right at the beginning, and of course the Bonacera character will, will come into play later, but here right at the beginning, we have this, this tension between um, the uh, civic or, or secular or, or uh, uh, the, the uh, established order of the government, uh, the law, the legal system. Uh, and then uh, this parallel system that the Italians, and uh, from my last name, you, you would probably have guessed that I'm uh, an Italian-American myself, um, that the uh, Italians have brought over from the old country. Uh, this, uh, they didn't invent organized crime, uh, although some would say they did. But, uh, but uh, the, the, this old system of La Cosa Nostra and Omerta. And so... Uh, this tension that's set up right at that beginning scene with Bonacera is the tension between our secular civic laws. There's Don Barzini, who will, uh, of course, be one of the main antagonists later on, and he's, he's being established here very casually. Uh, lots of things are just established uh, very, very casually here at the beginning. The parallel, the, 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 uh, parallel system I'm talking about is, is the... Uh, the, st the uh, established legal system in our in our society that uh, if your daughter is raped or if your house is burglarized you you go to the cops you go to the justice system for justice it's called the justice system and then there's this parallel system uh, it's sort of like uh, Sonny pinching the cheek of the bridesmaid that he will stup soon um, and then there's this parallel system that Don Corleone represents uh, when the justice system failed Bonacera, and he did not get justice, the judge suspended the sentence, and they went free that the very day, he says. And, he, you know, for justice we must go to Don Corleone. He, he appeals, instead of, uh, you know, there's nothing he can do about the judge suspending the sentence, but he can appeal to this old world uh, parallel system as an Italian-American who's an associate of the mob. He can appeal to Don Corleone. And you can ask the Don for justice. You can ask the Don to avenge his daughter and to, uh, and the Don uh, ultimately agrees 
uh, in exchange for, uh, you know, basically Bonacera owing him one. But I, you know, the American dream as as the main theme. I don't think that's the main thing. I think it, I think it it's really embedded it, for me at least. It's embedded in that opening scene where we do have that tension, and and it's not just that there's this parallel system uh, of the mob where. Uh, you know, as the Ray Liotta character says in Goodfellas, that um, uh, all we did, he's talking about the mafia, is like all we did was provide protection for people who couldn't go to the cops. That's it. That's, the, that's all we did. And in a sense, that's true. I think that's actually astute. Um, it's a, it, it's a, a secondary justice system that operates outside the law and operates in secret. There's Sonny's uh, temper being set up for us. Um, with him spitting, I think he spits right in the guy's wallet. Um, that's the whole movie for me is, is, and notice in that scene with Bonacera, it's not just that the Don agrees to, it's not just anything goes for the mafia, uh, that he's gonna, he's, he says, we're not murderers. He, and he even says to Bonacera, almost like Don Corleone is sitting at, at, at his, He's dressed in black behind this desk. It's almost as if he's the judge. And he says, which he is, and he says, that is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. But, but, but he also recognizes the, the crime that's been committed. And, um, and when he instructs Tom to give this to, uh, uh, I think, you know, to, when he instructs Tom to, to um, delegate the, 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 the uh, violence that's going to be done to these perpetrators, these rapists, he says, we're not murderers. He says, I want reliable people. Uh, you know, uh, we're not murderers no matter what this undertaker says. It's not just anything goes with the mob. It's, it, they too have a code. They operate outside the law. It's a parallel justice system. It, 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 it's, um, it, it's tethered to the old world and the old country and the old way of doing things. And Michael, uh, seen here for the first time in his in his military uniform with uh, the great Diane Keaton as K. Um, Michael, uh, it's not just his his rise to power that this movie's about. It, it's about this tension he has between um, his Americanness uh, and as a first generation Italian and his the way his family is tethered to the old country. He even goes to the old country in this movie. That's, that's his sort of uh, bifurcated or, or divided um, uh, personality and, and, and loyalties. And, and um, the idea of, you know, appealing to this, this secondary justice system or, or this alternative justice system, um, it, it's not just, you know, organized crime is too, I, I think, too clumsy a term for what we see in that opening scene. We see... Uh, once again, we see the Don applying his own code of ethics uh, within organized crime, uh, his own definition of justice, his own definition of moderation. He wants reliable people to take care of this. We're not murderers. Uh, of course, they are murderers, but but uh, when it's called for, it's not. They don't consider it murder. Just as in our normally, I'm not justifying. Uh, the deeds of organized crime. But I'm saying, just like in our normal system, there are occasions when you kill someone that you wouldn't be charged with murder. Uh, uh, warfare, self-defense, etc. 
uh, there are other uh, other narrow situations too in which you wouldn't be charged with murder. And so he doesn't uh, he doesn't think of it as murder uh, if it's called for. Um, and so we really see that in Godfather too with the. Uh, the, the established government in the states, the democratic government, and the the, the established legal system, and uh, and Michael being uh, being sort of volleying between uh, having to uh, engage that established legal system and the legal system that's tethered to his identity as an Italian and to the old country. Oh, Luca Brasi is one of the most memorable characters. It's so funny how he stutters through this. Uh, he's rehearsed it. Uh, uh, rigorously, and yet he he stammers through it. Coppola is full of these little uh, storytelling devices uh, that really are carefully carefully plotted out or planned out. Um, in order to know that the Don, for us to know that the Don, is, I mean, he's made reference to a congressman already in the movie. Uh, this is all set up. You know, he, he's made reference to a congressman. He, his political allies will come into play later. He is um, uh, having people come to him for favors on this huge wedding, which is obviously at his mansion. Um, so all of these little ways where we don't get someone coming out and saying he's powerful. Uh, we even have that character. I think it's the name of the character is Paulie. And he says, Oh, my goodness, if, yeah, because he's the one who will betray the Don later. He says, oh, if, if this were anybody else's wedding, when he sees uh, the bride going through the bridal purse uh, or going through her, her um, the money that she's been given, uh, uh, suggesting he would rob the wedding, you know, uh, but he's not going to rob this one because it's the Don's daughter. And um, then you have this humongous man, this uh, bear of a man, Luca Brasi, who's scared to death uh, and wants to make sure that the Don, scared to death of the Don, and may, wants to make sure that he shows proper respect and, and proper loyalty, that he demonstrates, he, he pledges his loyalty. All of these ways of suggesting just how powerful the Don is. This is the uh, one of the only times we really get to see uh, the Don's wife. And I feel like there's a whole reading of this movie that is totally appropriate. Uh, in her original review, uh, the great critic Pauline Kael ref uh, sort of obliquely referenced it. The whole way women are photographed and portrayed, and I'll, I'll get into that later on, but um, so many things that will play directly into the plot of the story that, that's coming later uh, will are being established with the wedding scene and, and the first sort of reel of the movie. Um, the wedding, you know, a wedding scene, I think Coppola has written about this uh, or spoken about it. The wedding scene allows you to have a bunch of characters uh, in one place and you can establish them, you know, in all different kinds of ways. Oh, and and all, all, all the little details done very casually. And so it's it's just tremendous. Uh, we've established already, I mean, I'm not going to list them all. We've established already Sonny's temper. We've established the consigliere, uh, the very trust-based relationship that Tom Hayden has with the Don, the, the Duval character and, and, and Vito Corleone have. Um, we established Johnny Fontaine here and, and that he is not only a celebrity, but someone women go nuts for. Connie, the bride, uh, played by Talia Shire, running clear across uh, in her wedding dress, running clear across the dance floor to greet him, 
everybody applauds him. Um, even the Don has a smile on his face uh, that he came all the way from California, as he just said there. Um, just, just great stuff. Um, yeah, this is the part where, uh, Johnny Fontaine's in, and we even established the, the, um, betrayer, uh, the, not just Barzini, but the main betrayer that we'll have at the end of the movie, which is, uh, uh, Carlo played by an actor named, Johnny Russo, uh, and uh, you should Google Johnny Russo, or or uh, there's probably a YouTube of him. Uh, there's a YouTube clip, I think, of him being interviewed by Howard Stern, and uh, Howard Stern um, just uh, talks to him for about an hour, and Johnny Russo is just uh, there. He is on on the left there. Um, he just has all kinds of stories, not just about the Godfather, but he he claims to have slept with Marilyn Monroe when Mar when he was a teenager and Marilyn Monroe was um, in her thirties, I believe in her thirties. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, or or I can't remember how old she was, but she but he was just a, a teenager and he he and he tells that whole story. So he's a fascinating guy and he's sort of pretty good as as Carlo here. Pacino, well, one of the one of the uh, the great actors here in an, in an early role and and the role the role that would more or less come to define him um the way storytelling is used within the godfather is something that was done rather ham the book is not you know uh pauline kale i think rightly called it a trash novel it's it's very pulpy and sort of uh, you know, especially some of the scenes you see in Godfather 2. In Puzo's fiction, they are, it's portrayed as very tawdry and so, sort of over the top. And and uh, the main thing Coppola does, does, rather, is he takes the, the same, he uses the story, he takes the story points, but he puts a different tone on it. So you have this operatic, uh, very serious, and, and uh, almost at times austere uh, uh storytelling cinematically uh, that is is um, sort of a step up from the book it's very nice michael telling Kay that story um even Kay, even his wife his waspy wife represents michael's uh, dual allegiance literally dual allegiance um uh, again, the the parallel structures of of you know as a as an American born Italian American, he uh, served in the army, and he was a war hero, and um, yet he feels this um, clearly feels an allegiance to his other family, well to his family, his biological family, but to his to the the larger American family as well. There's, there's this wonderful tension that is not, is not played up, uh, in a, in an exaggerated way. It's just, it's just, um, established, uh, you know, here and there, they mention that he's a war hero. Um, and, and it's just there for us to note. I, it's one of the, you know, it's a subtle movie, The Godfather. Even the way Kay is dressed, at, a, at this wedding, you know, suggests a, um, a brightness, a, 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 
the polka dots, the bright colors, suggest a, a, a different kind of life that Michael could choose to have. And right now, at this point, and in, in, I'll get into character stuff, but at this point, Michael doesn't, you know, we have his brother Fredo, the great Johnny Cazale, being established here. At this point, Michael never dreams that he's going to have anything to do with the crime business that the family's in. He's He's just not that brother, Santino fulfills that role. Fredo is, uh, as the Don will say later, Fredo is, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and I, I, uh, ultimately Kay even asks him in, in both movies, Godfather one and two, he, uh, you know, uh, Kay constantly asks him to choose. Sonny having, having sex, uh, again, a sign of Sonny's impulsiveness, uh, it's great that the movie, you know, doesn't even the ancillary characters, the supporting characters, this this uh, bridesmaid that he's having sex with um, uh, at the wedding is not a, as a character. She she doesn't have <laughs> lines or anything, but I mean, as a character, she is just not um, uh, used for that purpose. And she's used by uh, by Sonny, obviously, uh, at the wedding. But uh, I mean, in a, in a storytelling sense, she's not simply used for that sex scene and then cast aside. Later on, she comes back and we see uh, just before um, he um, he goes to beat up Carlo, I think we, we see that fr- uh, that um, Sonny rather uh, has taken her as his his gumana, uh, the Italians would say, uh, as his as his uh, girl on the side. And so yeah, you know, not everybody is used. I love that that reaction shot of Duval uh, laughing, and, and that's important too because it, the Don doesn't laugh, even though he's he's mocking Johnny Fontaine, sort of being a, accusing him basically of being a pussy. You can act like a man. Um, uh, it's important that we see that that's humor, but the Don is not the kind of guy who's who's going to laugh. But we get Duval laughing, you know. The whole issue with Johnny Fontaine not getting this part in the picture, and this guy Woltz. Here's the famous line: "I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse." Well, I said it, I said it at about the same time Brando said it, but um, uh, the whole um, Johnny Fontaine and and Woltz um, is is uh, often taken to be some sort of a um, embedded critique of Hollywood hot shots like Robert Evans and uh I don't I don't know about that I'll I'll say more about the Waltz thing when we get to it even even the even the wedding cake is over the top and humongous and overly big you know uh, a sign of of the Don's the Don's wealth so Oh, and here they are. They are, of course, discussing um, uh, the son-in-law, and also uh, the the new son-in-law. And and uh, the Don says uh, never discuss the family business with him, but basically allow him to to earn. Uh, probably he means as a, as an associate uh, of of the mob. Uh, you know, again setting up this idea of. What do you tell people outside the family? This this veil of secrecy that they operate in uh, that proves to be, you know, easy for a man like Sonny to abide by it, but harder for a man like Michael, who is constantly, you know, 
struggling to struggling to navigate his relationship with Kay. Uh, even in that shot we just had, uh, Kay is not being uh, not his not his wife, and so she doesn't want to be presumptuous and include herself in that wedding picture. But uh, we have that shot where where uh, Michael walks over, grabs her hand, and and proudly proudly has her stand next to him in that wedding picture at his sister's wedding. Um, he's in, he's including her in the festivities, but ultimately, what he tells her it, it will be limited and a source of great strife in in their marriage. Well, as we watch this, um, some of this stock footage, uh, as we watch the uh, the Waltz segment. Uh, begin that whole wedding sequence at at the beginning of Godfather though boy oh boy I, you know watching the movie again here I just realized that how it's all you know setting up pins that the movie's going to knock down later on and uh, it just doesn't seem that way it just seems like this fascinating world that that we're instantly drawn into and instantly interested in and so much is being said and so many conversations are had and because it's a wedding and people are mingling and and people are drinking, and so they're speaking freely. It all comes off. Nothing comes off forced. I mean, that's that's just great, great screenwriting. Um, well, as we watch this great uh, sequence with Duval visiting Woltz for the first time, let me begin my my sort of uh, uh, take on Godfather by talking about Coppola himself. Um, what happened to Francis Ford Coppola? Uh, from, let's say, around, you know, 1969, 1970 to uh, 1980, right? So 10, 11 years. It has been said that this may be the most productive and impressive um, decade or so that any filmmakers ever had. The laurels that he received during that decade are amazing. Uh, by the way, here as as uh, uh, Wiltz and Duval uh, or Wiltz and Tom Hayden walk, uh, we also have the idea of favors uh, that was established being being uh, you know um, the currency uh, within the the system of the mafia is favors, doing favors. Even in in Godfather Two, uh, Vito played by uh, De Niro will say, uh, "I know how to return a favor. I like to do favors for people. That's the currency in their world." And and Duval. Uh, Operating under that system uh, offers, uh, you know, uh, Waltz the opportunity to do a favor for the Don, and then he, you know, uh, a tit for tat. I admire your pictures very much. What I love about that little moment is um, uh, how uh, he says uh, he, he makes he says you guinea ba you know you guinea bastard. He makes an Italian uh, epithet, uh, and then uh, Tom Hayden says I'm German Irish. And he says, well let, well, let me tell you something, my kraut friend. In that case, let me tell you something, my, my Mick kraut friend. You know, he just adjusts the epithet. He says, oh, you're not that, you don't belong to that ethnicity. You belong to this ethnicity. I see. Well, I have an epithet right here for you, too. Uh, I, just love, I just love that kind of stuff. I, I love the way they, you know, it's very much uh, the period of the 1940s that's being depicted where it was, it wasn't as okay in 1972 to, to speak that way, um, uh, you know, setting up the horse here. 
So Coppola from, uh, let's say, 1970, 1980. Uh, he wins the Oscar for Patton in 1970, which got him uh, in the good graces of the studio. Um, he won for the screenplay, of course. Wins the Oscar for Godfather in 72, 73. Uh, then moves on to make The Conversation, a wonderful movie that could have won the Oscar, except the competition was so stiff that year. It was also stiff the year he made Godfather 2. Orange is on the table there, of course, a, a motif throughout Coppola's films. Uh, Godfather 2, I think, is, uh, you know, uh, perhaps is my favorite Coppola film, God, Godfather 2. Uh, you know, more Oscars. Um, moves on and, and takes the long journey into night uh, that, that leads him to Apocalypse Now. And uh, what he did during the, the that 10 years, I don't think, it, it's just undeniably a period of, of tremendous, it was a very stressful period for him personally, from what I understand, but just just the most impressive decade ever. And I think is the high watermark for American filmmakers in terms of output and success. And, and also commercial success that was also, um, you know, um, an artistic, artistically respectable and artistic successes, you know, sort of balancing that in a way that even Kubrick never really uh, uh, balanced. Kubrick was too, uh, uh, almost too, uh, too experimental with his storytelling to ever really find that balance. Not, not that he was looking for it. Now, I, I really love not just the outfit that makes him look like Captain Steuben, uh, but I love what Woltz says. Every line of dialogue he says is um, priceless. Even Duval, who doesn't doesn't stop eating, <laughs> but thanks him for a pleasant evening. You know, um, just but but yeah, every line that uh, of dialogue that Woltz has uh, is is just um, I love it, and I really love how. Um, they really do evoke the 1940s through the insensitivity of uh, Woltz. He um, he says, uh, you know, that Johnny Fontaine stole this young actress away from him with his guinea charms, as he says. And then he says, uh, let me be let, let me be even more frank with you just to show you I'm not a hard hearted man. Uh, she was the best piece of ass I ever had. And I had him all over the world. <laughs> It's just fantastic that he thinks that that uh, you know the fact that uh, she's um, uh, she was the best piece of ass he ever had makes him um, uh, somewhat uh, more of a sensitive guy. <laughs> Most people, because they're so focused on the bed, don't notice the Oscar statuette uh, on Woltz's nightstand. Uh, but it's a nice little touch and and kind of a uh, a cute a cute little thing in retrospect to to notice that they put it there because of course this movie would uh, the whole godfather saga would would rack up the oscars left and right uh, but most people are focused on wolf waltz and and the and the whole horsehead thing one of the many iconic moments in the movie here uh whether it's lines of dialogue or or horses heads in beds the blood the the fake blood is really great it, it makes you wonder how they snuck it in there without waking the man but of course it goes by so fast and we just we just get the point that 
that Vito Corleone has made his point. Um, uh, we get that point rather easily, and, and we're not supposed to ask questions like, well, how come he didn't wake up? And, and so, of course, Coppola moves past it pretty quick. I think what was going on with the, um, the wonderful, the Gent Coal Oil Company here, um, I think what was going on with the absolutely wonderful um, career that uh, decade that that Coppola was having is has to do with what was going on in American movie making during those years at large. You know, uh, just really quickly, uh, this voiceover we're getting that tells us the background on Salazzo is, uh, I think, one of the the uses of um, you know. Uh, giving background on an important character in just a really uh, a really deliberate way, you know, uh, um, in a fast way. Uh, I just like, it, it's artfully done. Uh, it, it didn't have to be that way, but it, it's also of a piece with the idea of Tom Hayden as the lawyer and consigliere. He's sort of the research man, the information man. He's the guy who finds out these uh, and coming up here, Salazzo will say my compliments to him when clearly Hayden has found out something that Salazzo didn't want him to find out. Um, so this this isn't just, uh, you know, to quickly give the, the audience information on who Salazzo is. This is also sort of a motif itself, you know, the idea that Tom Hayden will always be telling us uh, and telling the Don and, and the, the other characters background. Uh uh, Virgil Salazzo is one of one of my favorite villains uh, of the movies of this period. The career that Coppola was having in the 1970s is really, I think, has uh, emerged out of the larger um, change that was happening in Hollywood movie making. Uh, and I, uh, you know, you can date this in all different kinds of ways, but uh, let's just call it, say, 1964 through the 70s. So 19, roughly 1964 to 1980, um, just, just to arbitrarily do it. Uh, what was going on in American cinema from 64 to roughly 1980? Well, you have to notice what was going on and what movies were like before that. Uh, and just think of the the movies that won Best Picture in the 1950s, uh, movies like Marty. Uh, you think back to the 40s uh, or 1950, the best years of our lives, and uh, think of uh, the kinds of movies, I mean, Capra movies, and uh, the kinds of movies that were uh, popular, that, that people flocked uh, to go see, the kinds of movies that won Best Picture. Uh, and then in the mid '60s, I date it like at 1964. You start to see um, what's sometimes called the New Hollywood, what's sometimes called the Film School Generation, but uh, that usually refers to only a handful of directors. But but you start to see different kinds of movies being made as the old studio system uh, begins to um, rejigger itself and to some extent fade away. Uh, you start to see, and and the 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 cultural, the larger cultural shifts um, uh, that leaned toward a, a slightly more, in terms of censorship, censorship, slightly more permissive um, uh, constraints on on filmmaking and art. 
um, you start to see uh, these really creative uh, filmmakers emerge and actors, by the way, uh, who are interested in a wholly different kind of uh, movie making. Who uh, names that come to mind? Uh, Arthur Penn, Mike Nichols, uh, let's see, um, Robert Altman, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, of course, Scorsese, Spielberg, Milius, uh, they're sort of the film school generation uh, guys, um, uh, John Frankenheimer, John Cassavetes, uh, Milos Forman, I would include. Um, these were, they made movies that were often grounded in a kind of realism that we were not used to seeing. Uh, in the, uh, say, the 1950s and, and back to the 40s, 30s. Um, here's again making the point that, uh, the Don making the point, um, uh, also that he's vigilant. He knows about the Gumana, but making the point that you don't tell people outside the family what you're thinking. And as if on cue, Johnny's bouquet arrives as a thank you, starring in the new picture. I like the look of satisfaction on Duval. Uh, in addition to those different kinds of filmmakers, you started to also see, um, you know, well, you started to, I mean, they would make uh, their films and uh, think of the films that start. you started to see, uh, and they were popular too, so many of them. Uh, the films you started to see um, uh, in the mid-60s on through 1980, uh, uh, The Graduate, Butch Cassidy, Bonnie and Clyde, Midnight Cowboy, Easy Rider, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's just off the top of my head, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, All the President's Men. Um, again, movies grounded in a new kind of realism, movies that were interested in almost a different aesthetic while still um, uh, revering some of the old Hollywood panache, especially with people like Spielberg and, and George Lucas. Um, and I think... It's out of this general shift. And, and, you know, Coppola was at the forefront of that. He, um, he was, uh, you know, his whole dream as a young filmmaker, especially when he started directing movies, was, uh, you know, he, he directed a really great movie with Duval called uh, The Rain People, which is a great performance by Duval. Uh, you know, Coppola was really at the forefront of this change that was happening in movies. Uh he was always independent-minded. He His whole dream with American Zoetrope when he started his own studio, his whole dream was to to be a studio head. That's why I don't think he's he's really criticizing the arrogance of studio heads with the whole Waltz sequence here in Godfather because that was his dream, was to run a studio. That's why he started American Zoetrope, and he brought in actors and and, and crew and and other filmmakers that, that, that wanted to share his, you know, his dream for independence. And uh, he wanted to own a studio where he owned the cameras and he owned the, the lot and he owned the props. And, and uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a burning ambition for him. I think The Godfather and the success of Coppola in the 1970s as we watch Luca Brasi go to his meeting, Luca Brasi essentially a double agent, uh, uh, going to this meeting where he will suggest that he's not happy with the Corleone family and this little uh, film language touch here. He will soon sleep with the fishes, so Coppola gives him these fishes on the window. There's all there's little I mean this is a lesson in in sort of set 
you know, set dressing too. Uh, just the little ways you can suggest that there's a tension. The fact that, not just the fact that this bar is empty, but that the bar has the chairs up. It's closed. This isn't the normal time people meet here. Even the fact that uh, Virgil Salazzo has his overcoat on. I mean, I, I think that adds that he looks like he is about to leave, you know, it's just even though he's here for a meeting. You know what I mean? Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, the whole idea of military strategy and, um, and mafioso strategy being uh, very similar is, is played with in this movie. Uh, uh, Salazzo, uh, you know, if you use the, the chess metaphor, Salazzo, by, by uh, taking out the Corleone family's enforcer, they're one of their strongest assets, uh, Luca Brasi, Salazzo is taking the strongest chess piece off Don Corleone's board. It's nice to see cigarettes used in a movie not just uh, arbitrarily like the character happens to be smoking, but used as part of the, uh, you might say, uh, figurative uh, 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 film language that's being used. You know, Luca didn't light his own cigarette. Tatalia lit it for him. We're reminded of the fishes again. The brutal way that Luca was killed with the eyes uh, about to pop out of his head. I always think the sled he's carrying here, Tom Hayden, is going to say Rosebud. But anyway, it's a nice shot there of just the, the window, the Christmas decorated window. If you look here real quick, uh, I'll finish the thought I was uh, uh, saying there. But real quick, if you look here, um, that yellow sign behind the Don as he picks out his oranges, once again oranges, uh, that yellow sign is for a Madison Square Garden fight, uh, a Jake LaMotta fight, uh, uh, which is a beautiful little little touch. Um, also tells us where we are in a subtle way, right? Uh, I mean, uh, reminding us that this is uh, at least the tri-state area, you know, New York, uh, an advertisement for an event at Madison Square Garden. This is uh, really nicely edited and and uh, not you know only using a handful of cuts the fastest cuts coming when when uh, uh, Fredo ever the klutz uh, unreliable guy who at the moment of and this is a way of distinguishing Fredo from Michael right at the moment where he need, he could have saved his father's life Fredo fumbles and is and is, is it suggests he's a coward or at least uh, not made of the stuff that Michael is made of. But at the moment of truth, Michael, uh, in the hospital sequence coming up, Michael doesn't doesn't uh, falter. He doesn't fail his father the way Fredo does. And he doesn't cry. Uh, the, not that there's anything wrong with crying, but he doesn't weep immediately. You know, he's, he's uh, when the chips are down, as they say, Fre uh, uh, Michael is 
is uh, there to save the day. I always loved this little sequence here. I, I sometimes think of it just when I think of fun little moments in movies because it's not it's not something we're supposed to um, uh, it's not something that they you know run a as I say run a yellow highlighter over for the audience to notice it just happens very casually as they're walking down the street having this inane uh, or, or, or light-hearted conversation anyway about uh, Ingrid Bergman do you th would you love me more if I look like Ingrid Bergman or if I were a nun and they, it's in the foreground, uh, the uh, newsstand, they pass behind it, and Kay is, it has uh, sort of a happy expression on her face. Then when they emerge from behind the newsstand as they're walking, her expression has completely changed. And again, you know, Coppola doesn't emphasize it for us, uh, for the audience to say, notice this, notice this, but um, it's because she saw the newspaper before Michael uh, did, and she's distraught over it. Coppola loved that early in his career. He just loved this kind of um, film language that you don't um, you don't insist upon the the audience noticing it. You just put it there, like just the fact that as Michael doesn't include her in this conversation, uh, he leaves her outside the phone booth. She's looking in, uh, even the way they're standing. She's uh, facing one way; he's perpendicular, facing the other. Um, uh, you know, just. He, he uh, especially in his early work, I mean, uh, he just loved that kind of stuff, uh, uh, Coppola. In terms of set dressing, too, I, I love Sonny's house here. The Christmas cards on the mirror, the postcards there by the cabinet, the fact that he's... It, this really looks like a lived-in place where Sonny, where Sonny exists with his, with his wife. And you see Sonny even getting angry at, at uh, Clemenza for, for giving him the, you know, the facts. But, but yeah, this set, I mean, it, uh, again, his wife in the background. Uh, it just, it really just looks, I love when I see this in movies. It just looks like the place where Sonny would live, you know. They, they don't they don't really I mean we we tend to like Sonny in retrospect years left after the movies come out because it's James Kahn and he's he's so you know he manages to be believable uh, you know he he's got some he chews the scenery a little bit but it, it's a big character you know and uh, but they really don't give us much reason to like Sonny other than he is loved by characters we, we do like. And I, I notice at this point there's no real indication that this is Michael's story. I mean, this story is Michael's story, but we're, we're sort of focused on, on the larger, uh, just the events that involve all of the main characters. And um, it doesn't even feel like it's one character's movie. And I, I love, in the same way that Michael emerges and comes into his own and becomes the uh, the point man in the family. Uh, so too does the character, uh, you know, sort of in a meta fashion. Do, so too does the character in the movie. You know, he he sort of doesn't steal the movie; he claims it. It becomes his story. Uh, 
I don't know where Salazzo's hideout is, but it 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 always. I don't think we're supposed to. I mean, maybe they didn't uh, want us to see too much of this set, or or maybe they did it on the fly or something. But uh, it's it's not a very it's so dark that it's not a very memorable uh, locale. But it's I think it's supposed to be some kind of a, a, a closed uh, a truck stop or something. Those cups that they're drinking out of. I think Tom drinks out of a shot glass or something. The career, anyway, at any rate, the career that Coppola was having during that decade, and it's really kind of crazy that he never, uh, you know, his career really did, uh, in terms of the artistic merits of his movies, he never, after Apocalypse Now, he just never got there again. He never, uh, it's, he continued to make movies, but they were just good movies. They were They were never great it's almost like he had his it's almost like he's a, a prize fighter you know he he had his years and then it there was a, a just a tapering off where he he just was never that good again but he was able to have that great decade uh and make the movies he made and 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 you know um because of the larger uh, again, the uh, the new uh, new American filmmaking, the the larger um, uh, shift that had happened, um, it's usually attributed to movies like Easy Rider, and um, but it was it was uh, you know it, it was the totality of of this new kind of uh, you know even uh, Haskell Wexler's movie Medium Cool, you know this this really uh, daring approach that was I think a a function of the the changing political landscape too that people expected to some extent to see the changes that were happening happening to the body politic somehow re- reflected in the aesthetic of of movies and actors you know uh brando who was in this movie sort of laid the groundwork for the the sort of new realism of acting and so that uh that was populated in terms of male actors that became populated by Gene Hackman and Hoffman and Warren Beatty and of course Pacino and De Niro and um, of course Nicholson. Um, All of these things contributed to this this more permissible uh, Hollywood culture that was now um, to some extent, welcoming um, and willing to try, uh, willing to give someone like Coppola a little bit of slack so that they could try uh, a new kind of movie. Uh, the success of uh, movies like Easy Rider, the unexpected successes of some of the more adventurous movies, uh, made some of the producers in, in Hollywood uh, generally speaking, uh, um, slightly more willing to take certain chances. Now, this meeting is interesting be- to me because Fredo is not included, but Michael is, even though it's been established that Michael, uh, or it'll be established uh, more explicitly soon, but that Michael isn't in, isn't uh, in the uh, the mob aspect of the family, and isn't involved. He's sort of a he's a straight guy 
and um, perhaps the event of the father being, uh, you know, Vito being wounded has brought them to the point where they want to loop Michael in. That's a great moment where Tom Hayden suggests he's just as much a father to me as you. And uh, uh, Sonny, who was a hothead, uh, sort of makes a face like, okay, he accepts it because he knows it's probably true. He doesn't protest. I I love that. That, That's a little endearing uh, that we see Sonny do that. Again, done very casually. I always liked the, the little touch of Paulie, uh, the, the kid who uh, uh, sold out the old man, as Sonny says, and showed up for work sick. and uh, Just the, the casual way, you get this on The Sopranos too, the casual way with which they make the decision or give the order to whack someone in the family or, or an associate. Sonny says, I want him gone, and uh, Clemenza says, understood. It's, it's 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 chilling, positively chilling. Abe Vigoda um, telling us that, uh, telling the audience, really, it's a Sicilian message. And, of course, we notice, uh, I don't think they do a good enough job of having us notice the bulletproof vest that Luca, that was Luca's. It's a nice end of the scene that Michael hangs the phone up to. <laughs> but I, I don't think, I mean, I I. Uh, it was a long time before I actually noticed that that was the bulletproof vest. Uh, we o- there we only see uh, Clemenza's wife uh, briefly, and and it's not uh, you know she's not really made a, a character. Uh, the whole thing with women is uh, you know the women uh, generally in in the Godfather movies, at least one and two, they're they're photographed. Uh, Willis uh, often likes to shoot through doorways and windows and, and they're photographed um, uh, often in, when they're in groups they occupy brighter spaces a, a brighter a kitchen that's lit more brightly uh, or a living room that's lit more brightly in Godfather 2 where the wives are talking as, as the senator and, and Michael um, uh, argue in, in, the, in Michael's office and the men are cloistered in these darkened shadow uh shadow uh, uh shadowed rooms um uh, dusty smoky rooms where they where they brood and and uh, plot and make deals i don't think uh as we watch this shot it's a good time for me to say with that shot of the statue of liberty in the background um, and you know, a lot of uh, filmmakers wouldn't like the fact that, um, uh, I don't know if they, they created wind to have those, um, what do you call those plants, those sticky plants there uh, that, that are um, blowing uh, in, at that nice slow pace. Um, I don't know if they made them blow or not, but a lot of filmmakers wouldn't, wouldn't want any wind in a, a sequence like this and uh i like the wind i like that they're moving a little bit and there's this life to the scene as we watch clemenza piss and another famous line um leave the gun take the cannoli
I mean, th- that's something the the show The Sopranos did great too. Is uh, the ten? I mean, the cannoli maybe he's taking it home to his wife or something. That's why I mentioned that the um, you have it in this scene here with all the gangsters eating. The uh, the 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 uh, tension between the domestic life of the gangster, the wife, the kids. You see it with Sonny in that one scene, uh, and the business, quote unquote, business life. Um, the way they have to um, decide how much they're going to reveal to a wife, how much uh, time they're going to dedicate here or to business. It's all. It's always been something about mafia movies that, when they're well done, really just fascinates me. Even that phone call that Michael Michael takes that phone call from Kay. Um, he, you notice where he is in this kitchen where the gangsters and his family are congregated and uh, Clemenza is cooking for them. And um, it's as if she's beckoning him to to continue on the straight path and, 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 be, um, and to live as a, an Italian-American who is living an American life, not... Uh, a life tethered to the old world and the old country and the old ways and and the mafia. And he's walking that line right now. He walks it in that in that phone call. That always struck me as a a, a dubious uh, presumption on the part of. Uh, Clemenza when he says Salazzo knows he's a villain uh, Salazzo knows he's that Michael is a civilian um, you know they, they just tried to to kill the Don I mean I don't think I don't think the, the civilian status makes him insulates him against uh, you know at least being accosted right This hotel scene, um, I'll just say, is, is sort of heartbreaking, isn't it? Um, I think Keaton's pretty good in all this, but um, it's a different kind of um, divided uh, loyalties that we see from Michael in, in this scene. Because we see, you know, he's sort of, he's not a very emotional guy, Um uh, but he is, and in, in the second film as well, he'll be a guy who, who is able to talk about his emotions, but uh, at least a little. But he, we see, you know, he, he touches her arm there. I mean, he, he loves her, uh, and that's the problem. That's his problem, is that um, especially when it becomes clear that um, he's going to be the one that's going to kill Salazzo, and uh, McCluskey, Chief McCluskey. Um, he makes the choice to not abandon her and, and the life he has with her, but to put her on a lower shelf and to prioritize his life and to, you know, if you're, if, if he's going to decide to be a part of this aspect of his family, uh, then that's a decision that he can't go back on. And it's, it's, you know, the gravity of those choices are immense. I think this is some of this stuff in the hospital is, um, uh, 
stuff that uh, Coppola says on his commentary that George Lucas shot. George Lucas was Coppola's friend. Uh, Lucas was a little younger and um, was an assistant director on some Coppola projects. Uh, And so when Coppola was not there on the set, uh, Lucas, I think it's this stuff in the hallway, could be mistaken. I'm not sure what, but Lucas directed uh, uh, stuff here. It's it's very well done this this um, hospital sequence and my my favorite thing about it is that um, I I, th- I actually think uh, in terms of just you know creating that sense of foreboding and danger uh, without um, you know and you notice the music under if you listen to the the, the way that's scored. It's not this um, dun dun dun. It's this very slow kind of, um, uh, very slow but melodic kind, almost melodic kind of thing, that is just um, it, it almost pretty, but but it it it's not quite eerie. There's just something a little off about it, just like the situation Michael's in. He can't decide if there's something truly wrong at first he can't decide if there's something truly wrong with the fact that um he's not finding anybody here uh or that it seems to be a little too quiet um but that he slowly realizes that 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 this isn't just that that this isn't just something being a little off that there's something really wrong here and he springs to action you notice that it's tessio's men who were supposed to be there um, the number of betrayals in Godfather is, is, uh, you know, quite something. Um, if you, you know, there's Carlo, there's, there's Tessio, there's Paulie, uh, even Barzini is a kind of betrayal. Um, Michael's ability to spring to action It, it, I don't think it can just be a function of his military training and experience. Um, all the brothers ha- are just different from one another and different from their father, personality-wise, I mean. And so I, I don't think it's just that he's been a war hero and he, he's had his medal tested. It's very important that he is... Not what he is, but what he's not, almost. You know, you think of it that way. He's he's not Sonny. You know, Sonny might react too loudly or, or rashly or jump to the wrong conclusion and start yelling at the nurse instead of soliciting her help, right? Uh, Fredo wouldn't know what the fuck to do. But Michael, uh, it's not that he he's uh, somehow in between those two. He's something else entirely. Michael is, um, uh, you know is very lucid and 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 uh, and um, and practical and 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 reads the situation correctly that's very important too his ability to uh in the second film too his ability to read a person and to um sniff out a plot is uh terrific uh and terrifically sort of depicted in Pacino's performances the young Pacino was really um uh, not at all an overactor in uh, the way that we might associate with him. <laughs> not an overactor, but 
an overactor in playing the part of Al Pacino playing a role, you know. Um, but he, he, he was very, very... Uh, I think he enjoyed playing sort of dark, tormented characters who were uh, sort of serene on the outside. He had a string of those roles in the 70s. In terms of, uh, you might be thinking, oh, is there anything about this movie I don't like? Well, here's something I don't, it's not that I think it sucks. It's just I, I, I could see them doing it differently and being more successful. Uh, this moment that Michael has, the Don is, uh, awakens uh, in his hospital bed, sees that his son Michael is there. You even see the tear from Brando's eye uh, right here. And um, Michael, uh, and, and Brando has that sweet childlike smile that he gives the Don in that moment. You know, he's, he's got a Demerol drip probably, so that, that would more explain that than anything. But um, he... he uh, uh, Michael says to the Don, it's, I'm here with you, Pop. I'm here with you. And they have that little sweet little moment. And I don't think you need the lines, I'm here with you, I'm here with you. That's the, that's the whole point of their eye contact. He can, he can just say it with a, with a look. I think it, it would have been stronger, especially when you have actors of this caliber, Pacino and Brando. I mean, just let them, let them do it with a face. But, nah. Enzo the Baker. Um... It's really great when he uh, when he comes in and he looks like he's carrying a gun from behind. He's dressed in black the way the assassin in Godfather 2 is dressed in black almost with the hat. Uh, long coat. He sort of has a slow stride as he walks down that hospital hallway. And then it's revealed that he's actually carrying a, a bouquet. And um, we remember, oh yes, of course someone would just be popping in to show their respect for Don Corleone. He, this is, uh, that was set up in the first scene of the movie. People, you know bending over backwards to show their loyalty and love and respect um michael putting on this little play too making it look like they're henchmen guarding the don is um is really uh i think the best example of michael's intelligence realizing that uh just as we mistook enzo for a henchman well, he doesn't realize anything about we, the audience, but I'm saying just as we mistook Enzo for a henchman, so too will these assassins as they drive, as they drive by. Um, and, and many people have pointed out that the whole the thing with his hands shaking and then uh, or Enzo's hands shaking and Michael's hands not shaking as he lights the cigarette. Uh, again, a great use of cigarettes that actually tells us something. It's not just people puffing away. So Sterling Hayden, Jack D. Ripper, um, this is not his, in terms of acting, this isn't his greatest performance, but I think the, uh, the sort of old school kind of um, TV movie of the week, made for TV movies from the 50s, if you see any old footage of them, I mean, you had acting like this, you had uh, police chiefs who would, uh, why you little punk, you know, um, but I think it works, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I, I think, I think that's why they probably got Hayden or, uh, uh, Sterling Hayden because he has that kind of old school police chief from the 1940s vibe to him. So, um, Tom Hayden shows up just in time, right? Um, 
and says all the right things. But this is like one of the more plausible little scenes with with the lawyer showing up because, um, by the way, as a law school dropout, I know this, um, <laughs> but that's what you pay a lawyer for if you have a lawyer on retainer. I mean, that, that's what you pay a lawyer, not to bring lawsuits, um, uh, but to threaten with legal action or lawsuits or some sort of legal action, uh, not to actually perform, but to threaten it and to and to and to file the papers, but then you know uh, then retract them. Uh, you know to to uh, to you know it's like uh, people thinking you have a gun in your pocket, like Enzo, uh, but it was just his hand. So what starts the war, you know, um, as uh, Abe Vigoda just said, they hit Bruno Tattaglia. Well, it starts the war between the five families. The five families, which are, any Godfather fans out there? Five, five families are um, Barzini, Tattaglia, Corleone, of course, um, Stracci, and Cuneo. Uh, they are fictional families. Uh, you see, Sonny is over the moon, overconfident in this uh, uh, scene. Probably one of the strongest scenes in either The Godfather 1 or Godfather 2, this scene in the office right now while the Don is recovering. The war has just started, and this is the scene where Michael has... This is the moment where Michael makes the transition, um, which gets nicely undercut by the laughter of his brother. Sonny's impulsiveness and overconfidence in hitting Bruno Tattaglia is what starts the war. And, and it beg, begs the question, would the Don, were he in a position uh, and not infirmed or injured, I mean, w was he, um, would he have hit Bruno Tattaglia? Would he have made that call? Would he have started the war? Uh, what he when he does recover and he has that big sit down with all the five families he he speaks in a way that suggests uh, uh, that he the very idea of a war between the families is something that is um, he's alarmed by right once again Tom Hayden the man with the information right um, explaining that McCluskey's on the payroll uh, and uh, again, this isn't just like a, an information dump because the, uh, you know, Coppola is a screenwriter during this period, just really knows how to have an actor do this kind of information dump in a long sort of narrative. He tells us all this info about McCluskey, how he's in cahoots with Salazzo, he's on the payroll, and but it gets used right away because all of this uh, I love that Sonny's behind the desk, but all that information that Tom just revealed, in addition to information that's already known, is going to be synthesized right here in, in what in this in this next uh, uh, monologue by um, Michael. Uh, he's explaining uh, almost uh, now this might be his military training, right? Michael's explaining uh, the strategy. Um, uh, you know that's the key for him is McCluskey and. Um, this is what this will be a good plan. They're not expecting me, and he very slowly lays it out as we have, uh, just like we had that zoom out from Bonacera at the beginning. We're going to have this slow, this slow uh, uh, sort of zoom in on Michael uh, during this moment. Uh, and again, it's you know, Pacino has uh, 
just uh, De Niro. He and De Niro have this uh, as young actors. Just this ability to play it at a, at a, not a monotone. It's not a monotone, but it's a very even wavelength. Um, very calm. He's very calm. You know, there's not a muscle in his face tightened except for that big cheek of his. Um, I'll kill them both. <laughs> and you know, and Sonny is just not as perceptive as Michael. Once again, uh, he 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 laughs this off. He thinks, it, and Tom doesn't laugh because he recognizes the um, uh, the sense in what Michael has suggested. But um, Sonny is not re- in his overconfidence and in his in his. Um, childish way that he he breaks his brother's balls here uh you know practically almost puts him in a noogie after he lays out (laughs) tom this is business he's taking it very personally you know um it it's just all of a piece it's all part of sonny's inability to function as the leader of this family it's it's uh, almost as if the movie believes in destiny, right? Uh, Michael is the proper leader, and so he becomes the leader. And he appeals to Tom as consigliere to tell, to, to um, uh, vindicate him, or, or to at least say that um, uh, there is good sense in what, he, in what he's saying. That's what consiglieres are for. Uh, you know, is this a sensible... Uh, uh, plan or or not i never liked in that shot of the gun that clemenza's fly is sort of open a little bit weird so michael would have known how to handle a firearm of course once again because he was in the the military i i don't know where they are this was this always um made me a little curious uh where are, where are Clemenza and Michael right now? This appears to be Clemenza's little little hut in the in the mansion. This is this is a, he is like Jabba the Hut. <laughs> uh, th- this is what his little uh, his shed where he has um, paint cans everywhere and pictures of Pope Leo the Fourteenth or whoever the fuck you know. Uh, it's just it's just weird, um, but it makes sense that um, they would be here because of the tools and everything. Uh, this is the place where Clemenza has prepared this weapon. Uh, um, I, one of the things I like about Godfather two is how it does go into, um, uh, what Puzo goes into in his books, uh, does go into this, this whole story of, of Peter Clemenza and how he met Vito and how it's actually Clemenza who, um, is one of the catalysts that that brings Vito into a life of crime. Uh, the industrious young young Clemenza, who who is uh, played by an actor who is not as as portly. So we we it's this funny little thing uh, embedded in it where we see that as he aged, uh, just like the Don, uh, uh, De Niro was not uh, as. Um, overweight as Brando at this time and so both Clemenza and the Don uh, as they age and move up the ranks and organize crime they also put on weight I didn't mention the whole cheek thing Uh, I have a whole point of view on this Uh, when Michael is sitting there and having that transition and talking about the you know where where he says I'll kill them both and 
the idea, of course, um, symbolically, is that he's turning into his father, that he's turning into the, the, the one who should lead the family, uh, that it is not Sonny. Sonny, uh, you know, is just too, too crass. Even, even here, they make sure that he's in a, a wife-beater shirt, as, as, uh, as we say, uh, instead of uh, everyone else is at least in their, in their shirt sleeves. Meanwhile, Michael is fully in his suit. Uh, he's, he's not allowed himself to be uh, disheveled, uh, part of the reason because he's about to go out. But The, the, the thing with the cheek in that whole scene where Michael's sitting there and, and explaining the plan, he's turning into his father, and so uh, they, the fact that he has injured his cheek and, and, uh, or has broken his jaw makes him speak with that kind of lisp or that more guttural, uh, almost uh, way of speaking, that, of course, his father, the Don, speaks with, that, that sort of uh, famous godfather voice. And so he's... Uh, when he literally transitions to the leader of the family, uh, uh, in a way, he's he's also resembling his father. And I, I've heard people say that they they feel that's too on the nose. That that's too that's symbol a symbolic uh, sort of uh, choice. Uh, that's too on the nose. And I I totally disagree. I I think it's just right. I think Pacino doesn't play it up too much. He he does seem to speak like someone who's injured their their jaw and and. If you've ever had an injury like that, either from getting getting punched or being in some sort of accident, uh, an injury to the jaw, I mean, where it swells like that, and you do speak like that. Um, uh, also, if you've had teeth pulled, you do get a, you know, you speak like that. So, uh, number one, I like it because Pacino doesn't play it up. He just sort of plays it straight, calm, like I said. And uh, also, it's just not on the nose. I'm sorry. It's something that probably, uh, you know, he's not doing a Brando impression. You know, it's something I bet some people don't even pick up on um, at all. What would have been on the nose is, is if at that moment he would have been sitting behind the desk or if at that moment... He would have had the cat, and he and and like his father was, he would have been playing with the cat in his lap. Um, that would have been on the nose, right? But but the way it's set up in the movie, it's not on the nose. This is a staple of mafia movies that when someone acts as a, as an assassin or when someone kills someone else, they often are. Uh, in the Sopranos, they say you have to, you have to go away for a while. They often leave town and for a period of time, a cooling off period. And it's during this time, uh, when you, when you look at the story in terms of Michael's character arc, it's sort of during this time, it's a nice use of, uh, an old location, Jack Dempsey's restaurant. Manasseh Mauler. Um, Michael's arc is uh, this act, this act of um, assassinating or, or killing uh, Virgil Salazzo and Chief McCluskey is the act that uh, consummates his um, uh, or, or kind of baptizes him 
and solidifies him as um, truly having made the choice to be a part of this aspect of his family. Remember, to this point, he was, uh, like Sonny says, all-American boy, college boy, war hero. Uh, Clemenza in that scene in the little shed or whatever says, you know, we were all really proud of you being a war hero and all. I mean, when, when someone's a war hero, you'd think that he'd get, he would have had someone say that to him or know that, but it, it comes off as if uh, maybe even his father hadn't said that or nobody had said that to him. Uh, like, they don't they don't recognize thing achievements that he might have done on the outside world or, or maybe because uh, it reflects an allegiance to something other than the family. But what Michael is about to do in the famous scene at the restaurant is meet that point of no return. Um, he he, and he effectively it's it's you could say it's a scene about his relationship with Kay too. It's a scene in which he is chosen by being you know by signing up to to be a part of his family's enterprise, the business end of his family's enterprise, the muscle end. He is, um, again, making Kay a second-class citizen in his life. That stunt driving was pretty tough with those old, those old vehicles there. Um, you know, the, you notice that when the car uh, kind of makes that uh, U-turn at, at speed or, or reverses, you know, does a 180 at speed and starts going the other way, that uh, the stunt driver they had doing it do- doesn't actually go very fast because uh, I'm not sure that that um, old car would have would have been able to handle that. Um, they look pretty heavy, and uh, I just don't know that they they um, have the handling that maybe a Camaro would have, right? So. It's also, and the movie will get to this, but isn't it also kind of cool that um, after Michael has officially made the choice to choose um, being a part of the the mafia versus the path he was on, which was all-American boy, or at least having a life as an Italian-American, not, you know an Italian-American who is insulated in, or, or installed in his life uh, in the mafia, right? Um, isn't it also interesting that he, the first thing he does uh, in the plan is for him to go to the old country to hide out. You know, he doesn't go to Cleveland. He goes to the old country. Uh, he ensconces himself you know, he, he takes a wife there. He he ensconces himself in um, the old ways, and it's almost like the movie goes back in time to, to the old country, the old ways, and where this whole system of the mafia and La Cosa Nostra comes from. He surrounds himself in that environment and doesn't speak to Kay, doesn't write, doesn't call. Um, well, and, and, you know, they would argue, you know, you might argue that that to do so would have been endangering himself and her, uh, you know, during the period after he, he 
uh, commits these murders. But it is a very cool touch that he, he goes and, and takes a wife and, and, and um, uh, officially connects, I think, that whole... I mean, some I've heard people say, um, um, stupidly, I think, that the whole Sicily sequence where the wife and then the wife dies and this and that uh, is just, you know, could have been cut from the movie. He could have just, they could have just done a jump cut. He goes away and now he's back. Um, but I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that that's the whole, at least my reading of the movie, that's the whole point is that he's, he is, um, it's, it's almost like he would have had to go there anyway, given that he's made the choice to lead the family or at this point he hasn't made the choice to lead the family, but you know what I mean? They made the choice to get involved with this end of uh, this uh, aspect of the family. Um, he has to bond with the old country and the old way. He has to bond with um, his roots because remember, La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, is um, is a, an old country, old world way of doing things. It it represents the past, and Michael, as a young first generation Italian American, is someone who's eyes are you know on the future you know he he doesn't have to that's what's so um sort of tragic about the michael character is that he, he doesn't i mean he couldn't control whether santino got killed but he doesn't have to have this life right he 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 could have chose otherwise um and it before the Don dies, it's one thing that he is chagrined by. Uh, he says, I wanted you to be Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, and I never wanted this for you, which is also something you see in mafia movies. There's some of that uh, in, the, uh, in The Sopranos, too, you know. Uh, we never wanted this life for you. We wanted you to be a doctor, you know. It's always weird that he, um, you'd think they would have known something was up as soon as Michael stops as he walks out of there. Um, it's a very well-staged scene and, and well-played. Um, it appears to happen almost in real time. Uh, there seems to be a jump cut where, uh, or a time lapse where... Um, between the initial pouring of the wine and Salazzo asking if he may speak Italian to Michael. Um, uh, there seems to be a, a lapse there, and, and, and then the entree, all of a sudden there's entrees in front of them. So probably it was a few minutes before they brought the entrees. But other than that, it, it seems to take place in real time. And we have one of the big chords of score music that comes in very old old-fashioned bum 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 and very operatic and very italian sounding right this location that they used is um with it from the tiles on the floor to um even the neon sign in the window appears to be period i mean it's uh, it's really great um uh, that kind of graphic violence was um still new in American movies. Um, 
I mean, this movie comes out in 72. Uh, Ten years prior, in 62, you wouldn't have seen that. Even in a, a color movie, even in a B movie, it would have uh, it would have been different. Now, this I'm not against. I guess I am against montages in a sense. But this whole montage of uh, uh, is strange. There's Coppola's father uh, and Willie Chichi, right, S- leaning on the piano there. Willie Chichi, who will of course be one of the funniest witnesses to to um, uh, appear before the Senate uh, uh, committee. Uh, in Godfather 2, uh, uh, Mr. Chi-Chi, uh, <laughs> it's just one of the, the greatest, uh, he's even better than, uh, when Pentangeli, uh, testifies, Frank Pentangeli testifies, he, he's even, uh, Chi-Chi's even funnier, um, but anyway, this montage where they're mixing these gangland photos with, um, uh, photos of uh, people in the Corleone family uh, uh, eating and for some reason throwing spaghetti in the garbage, Clemenza uh, napping, and then, as we saw there, napping in his boxers. You know, like, I- I'm not sure that they chose... I know it sounds crazy to criticize The Godfather, but I'm not sure that they chose the most interesting imagery for that montage, <laughs> you know? I mean, it was literally Clemenza sleeping and taking a nap, and then deciding apparently that uh, this nap is going to last longer than I anticipated. I'm tired, so let me t- let me get naked and I'll sleep in my boxers. You know. And, and meanwhile, we have the the newspapers and stuff. They could have chose more interesting imagery. And it gives us sort of a lot of the narrative that happens while Michael's gone. Uh, but then we get the whole sequence with what Michael's up to during that time. So you know. Another shot with women and children. Uh, this camera angle at the top of the stairs as they wheel and ultimately carry Vito back home in the stretcher um, is sort of a an angle that makes the place look small. Uh, it was strange that they selected that because the other angles that they were using for that staircase uh, made the place look big and sort of mansion-like. That made it look small. What I was going to say about women and children is that there, many times in both Godfather One and Two, they are here. They're being uh, given an audience uh, with Vito, and and then, um, and then they're quickly shooed off, shooed back into the kitchen or or into the the rooms that they're meant to occupy while while the men talk in the in the more secluded and darkened room that door closing will of course become a symbol at the end of the movie uh, dividing Kay and Michael Talia Shire with her hair like that looked a little bit like Sarah Silverman doesn't mean anything but it's kind of interesting you see we even get a little thing where a little um, the way Carlo treats Connie there so at this point in the movie, um, they're they're setting up Carlo as kind of um, an asshole because he's going to ultimately uh, suffer uh, 
and be br is ultimately going to be brutalized violently by both Michael and Sonny. And so it's that old thing where we want, you know, in order for that to seem satisfactory to audiences, they have to view that character as somehow deserving it or somehow a bad guy. Um, of course, in a mafia movie, it, it's also interesting if he's not a bad guy, right? Because that happens too. And, it, and not only is it realistic, but it, it, it's a different kind of tragedy to the act. So the idea of Fredo um, being farmed out to Vegas to learn the casino business is, um, is really, uh, I think, just a reason to, uh, in terms of these characters, I think it's just a, just a, it's almost like, you know, he's not going to be learning or anything. He's not going to be running anything. He's going to be, you know, a stooge. He's going to be somebody's, and it's just a way to get, to get him out of, out of their hair. I mean, he's, um, uh, I don't know, but, but probably the Don, uh, blames him for uh, fumbling with the gun you know we never have that moment where Fredo explains what happens you know <laughs> again uh, here Sonny is asking Tom to get to get information about Tatalia Later, um, Michael will tell in one of the uh, sort of softer betrayals in the movie, you might say, Michael will tell Tom that you're not a wartime consigliere. Uh, but the, I mean, they're at war now while Sonny is acting boss. And the advice that Tom Hayden is, is giving Sonny, the advice regarding... Um, you know, war is costly. He's urging caution. Uh, all of this advice is is uh, is sound. Uh, so the the whole thing with Michael not is telling him he's not a wartime consigliere is is um, uh, specious. It's just Michael's excuse to to uh, distance uh, himself from Tom at that time. You know, one of the reasons, as as we begin the uh, the uh, Sicilian sequence here, I think the Simpsons once did a takeoff on this, where uh, Bart went to Sicily uh, after he'd done something bad and uh, something like that. He was wearing these paper boy these paper boy outfit and um, uh, that Michael wears with the hat and. Uh, there are all these, um, in terms of Italian culture, Italian-American culture and Italy, uh, you know, Italian-Italian uh, culture like you see in Italy, um, Coppola, uh, like Scorsese, throws in all of these little things that um, one doesn't want to say only Italians would notice, but, but just little things that you might not notice, like... Uh, uh, just the subtle differences in the way this um, this mafioso, this man who's gotten out of the car, 
um, his physical presentation, uh, you know, this, the way this Don, um, behaves versus the way the Don in the States behaves, or, you know, he's a little less formal. He's, a, he's not wearing a suit jacket. He, he is, um, uh, Michael refusing a ride from him here. Uh, he is, um, uh, sort of more slightly more boisterous than Michael's father, you know, uh, all these subtle differences between Italian American behavior and the behavior that we're seeing here in, in Sicily and Sicilians, uh, many Sicilians would say, uh, uh, we're not Italian, we're Sicilian. Uh, okay. All right. Have it your way. All the, the Italian, the, the Sicilians in this movie, uh, the Corleone family, uh, uh, especially in Godfather 2, uh, uh, self-identify as Italians. Uh, these two um, uh, bodyguards that Michael has um, uh, are uh, seem rather... Um, they seem c cast in a way where... Um, not that they resemble each other, but they, they seem cast in a way where they kind of disappear. Our focus is, is on Michael. There's nothing you know physically interesting about them, or they're only slightly taller than Michael, which is a, a way to um, reinforce the idea that they are there to be bodyguards. He first sees his, um, his wife, uh, his future wife, uh, sort of through these pink flowers as she emerges, um, sort of Madonna-like out of the sunlight with, uh, with this child, um, suggesting, you know, maternal potential. Um, it's never, you know, this sequence in Sicily is not funny enough is not it really opens the movie up and gives it that epic feel in in retrospect but i mean it's not someone that people remember a lot uh at a screening i went to once this was you know a lot of people went to the bathroom when michael went to sicily <laughs> it was being presented without an intermission this movie and um i i, I kind of get it but i think there's a lot to be said for it um you know, even that little moment where Michael falls in love at first sight, uh, it's not done in a hokey way at all. It's not done the way Capra would do it. You know, it's it's just, you know, and, and again, Pacino underplays it. He just, he has this almost creepy look on his face. Uh, you know, would you want someone, uh, if you were a woman, would you want someone uh, looking at you like that? I mean, it, it's this leering thing that he does, but it's it's realistic, frankly. Um I do think that this whole sequence is really about Michael accepting, you know, you have to understand that uh, the mafia is connected to the old country and that it is an old, it's not, it's not just old country, it's old school. It's the old way of doing things. And Michael is uh, literally during this sequence marrying into that that old, I mean, look at the building that, that this man's, uh, that her, that her father's, uh, cafe is, is located in. The building must be hundreds of years old. Uh, he is 
I don't want to say resigning himself. Uh, he he's embracing it. He's embracing um the culture from which his new life comes from. When he returns, he will be officially a mafia guy. And if you accept that, you have to accept the old way of doing things, the old way of courting of courting this woman he would like to be his wife. And, and um uh, uh one time a friend of mine not didn't misunderstand the movie but just assumed um wrongly that um uh missed the fact that Michael and Kay are not married. So Michael is not a bigamist. He is not married to Kay. He is uh, <laughs> For all intents and purposes, he is separated from Kay during this time, and um, he he is uh, seeking to marry someone else. So he's not he's not married. He's not um, cheating on a wife or anything. Um, not cheating on anybody. I mean, he, the uh, the idea here is he has not seen Kay for a good long while. So it's not just accepting La Cosa Nostra, it's accepting the old the old way of doing everything. The way he is courting this woman is first by going to her father and with a show of respect. And um, it's also a moment where we again see Michael um, conducting himself in a, in a way that is uh, both admirable and uh, aggressive. Um you know this this sort of um, respectful way of asserting himself is something that you really see in Godfather too when he handles the senator senator Healy um, uh, in that scene in the office where he says uh, uh, you know that uh, he won't pay the um, the bribe that the senator asks for and in fact he wants the senator to pay for the gaming license and. Um, uh, he says that not in an aggressive way, but in a very calm way, in a way that uh, that is, um, n- you know, not trying to be intimidating. Because like his father Vito, he he doesn't have to try and intimidate people. He he's got the muscle. You know, you don't. Uh, it's sort of like um, guys who uh, get really uh, animated and yell that they're going to kick so and so's ass, and they they try to intimidate someone uh uh it's it's not uh something that someone who really knows how to kick some ass generally feels the need to do or often doesn't feel the need to do because um you know they can walk the walk and that's that's michael that's even uh, uh does this go on too long um we never really care about the wife we only care by proxy. We care through, I mean, this woman that he's courting. Um, uh, we care because Michael cares. We, uh, we're so bonded to him at this point in the movie and, and everything that he's been through. Uh, and I love that she has to sit on the other side of the table and He's, he makes eyes with her. It is a beautiful actress that they that they got. It looks like an actress that you might see in uh, uh, in an Antonioni movie, or uh, of course in a, in uh, any of the Italian neorealist movies. It's a great use of the. Um, I mean these these are almost cliche shots. I mean you you think that these are sort of cliche sh- cliche shots 
of Sicily or Italy, you know, the countryside, the rolling hills, the, the, the lush green plants, this, this uh, uh, dirt road that, the, that they're all walking on. You think those are cliche shots, but go to Italy. Uh, I mean, it's one of those countries where it's like, fuck, that's what it looks like, you know? Uh, um, it's, it's sort of like, um, um, what's it, what's another example? Uh, Russia was like that, you know, Russia, we think of these cliche shots of, um, those onion top buildings and no, go to Russia. It really looks like that. And it's really cold. So there's the Gumana. Uh, again, she's not really a character that has much, um, uh, screen time, but but just just uh, again, um, because of what will later happen to Santino, we have to understand. I mean, I mean, having a, a girl on the side is also, you know, we we don't see that from Michael, uh, or you know, it, it's a function of his impulsiveness. It's a function of his own um, uh, the, the character flaws of Sonny. You know, he's impulsive. He's egotistical. He he um, is self-destructive to a certain extent. So the self-loathing here of Connie is not... Uh, we'll learn more about her character in Godfather 2. And it, it's not really... Um, I don't think the character we get to know later in this in the uh, saga would say that... Would believe that it's her fault. Uh, Talia Shire, of course, would be Adrienne and... and the Rocky movies, and she's really, I always liked Talia Shire. Um, now, what Sonny says to her, of course, is, do you think I'd make uh, make those kids uh, an orphan or something? Uh, it sort of mirrors what Michael will say to Carlo late in the movie. Do you think I'd make my wife, or do you think I would make my sister a widow? Uh, because Carlo is fears that he'll be killed. And of course, Michael is being characteristically disingenuous. Uh, later in that same scene, he in fact does make her a widow. Tells Carlo he's getting on a, he will be getting on a plane and he is getting garroted instead. So this, as a fight sequence, this is, is brutal, but I think, you know, and shooting it, wide like this shooting it from from like down the block from about where you'd be standing if you were a person witnessing it this looks like the block I grew up on um same kind of garbage cans and same kind of uh, fights you know <laughs> guys weren't this well dressed but The humiliation Carlo suffers will be one of the reasons he will ultimately do what he does in the story. We never get, you know, inside Michael's head very much. And I think that's actually instructive for a lot of movies these days. You know, we never have that scene where Michael... Uh, opens up about, you know, I mean, he's here, he's supposed to be in hiding. Uh, he's supposed to be keeping a low pro, right? And uh, 
And look at this uh, opulent wedding. Uh, he's, I mean, walking through the streets, uh, having rice thrown at him, uh, taking just the just just the fact that he's gotten married at all, or or had any kind of um, romantic uh, relationship at all, is um, there are liabilities to that? Considering what he's doing here, he's not on vacation, right? Um, and so we never have that moment where Michael explains himself, uh, uh, his intentions presumably were to, t would be to take this woman home with him. And, <laughs> but it is, it is, uh, you know, the marriage to, uh, Apollonia, which is the name of the wife is, um, is really a consummation is the word I used before. And it's apt. I, I think it really is the way he, um, he, uh, fully embraces the new life he's chosen for himself, uh, or the new life that's to some extent been thrust upon him. Michael becomes a bad guy, right? Michael Michael becomes what he didn't have to become. He goes from, uh, at least in, in if you, you know, the categories of the movie, he goes from a a noble, decorated war hero. Uh, and a guy who's on a track toward the American dream, uh, uh, and and sort of toward uh, being a straight guy and an honest living, making an honest living, he goes from that to um, uh, being a crime boss. Now here's the full, not full frontal, but the topless scene in movies of this period uh, where there, it was a hard R rating. It was a, a drama movie that was likely to, you know, not be. Uh, stuff that uh, only adults would be interested in seeing a R-rated um, movie. And so in this period, they would often urge directors to uh, have nudity um, because it would help with the uh, marketing of, not the marketing, but it would it would help sell tickets. And, and they, they often urged, I mean, in the Scorsese movie, Boxcar Bertha, you, and I'll explain if you just watch how this um, nude scene plays off here. Uh, I'll tell you why I, I think it's kind of one of those nude scenes that you see in sort of uh, adult movies, not adult movies, but uh, um, uh, movies that are uh, intended for adults, dramas uh, of, of this period. Um, in Boxcar Bertha, the Scorsese movie, he was actually... Um, strongly urged which is to say made to um, uh, film a, a nude scene and um, he had to, he filmed it overseas he tells the story in one of those documentaries but um, that's uh, they that seems to me like almost one of those scenes because of the way the nudity happens it, it just seems like um, you know he's when he takes her her spaghetti strap uh, sort of negligee down uh he does it from across the room uh pacino you know almost he's standing i mean if you're really about to make love uh with someone and you take her her top down you're you're not going to be standing um you know uh, three feet away uh, he's standing that distance so the camera can pick it up and she's sort of facing almost uh, f almost face she's three quarters to the camera uh, so she's almost facing the camera so we get this nice long shot of her boobs and you know it it just seems like uh, 
in a real love scene where someone's getting naked, it's, it's, you know, you see it in other movies where it's, it's at least the nudity is more realistic. It happens while people are tearing their clothes off or. So this whole thing, depending on how you read the events of the movie is, um, is part of the plot, part of the plan to knock off Sonny. Um, any Gumana of Carlos would know Vafangul is what they said to each other. Um, is that like a little Garbo face on the wall there? Now, this is like her Citizen Kane scene, like that scene in Citizen Kane where um, Wells just goes crazy and smashes everything in the bedroom. Um and it's it's uh you know the it's actually pretty cool there's some cuts in there but they they the camera sort of tracks them around the apartment as as Talia Shire uh busts all this stuff um, she's sort of the wardrobe here is to is to um demonstrate that she's pregnant uh he calls her skinny while she's clearly pregnant which is what pregnant women uh, probably want to hear um she hit him hard with that those poker chips but yeah so it's so um it gets pretty heavy here when she grabs that knife it's part of a it's part of a uh the the plot uh essentially to kill sunny uh because uh, as i say any any um girlfriend of carlos knows not to call his house where his wife picks up uh, you see he's a pretty brutal guy um And the, the little sound design there where her screams move to the to the baby's screams or, or shift into the baby screams. What gets him killed? Uh, but but yeah, so so they they you know, it was it was intended that she would call and that Connie would pick up and that she would have a confrontation with Carlo and that that confrontation would become uh, heated and that it would lead Carlo, uh, I mean, Carlo is, this is, um, Carlo's in on the plot, so Carlo then beats up Connie, and that's why I say it's it's Sonny's character flaws, his impulsiveness and his anger, and his inability to be more like his father, his inability to be measured and moderate and calm, uh, that gets him killed, because Carlo and, and, uh, and Barzini, uh, who, with whom he conspired with, we find that out at the end, uh, uh, they know that Sonny's gonna, Sonny's gonna react in exactly this way. Uh, he promised Carlo that he'd kill him if he touched his sister again. Um, they knew he'd react this way. And they knew that he'd have to take the causeway to, to get there, right? So it's a nice, it's a nice little literary way of doing it. You know, it's it's his fatal flaw, this this anger, this impulsiveness. I love that the toll booth operator is in on it. Apparently, it's quite a death scene. Uh, <laughs> that uh, when I saw this theatrically, this is one of. This is one of the death scenes that 
you know, uh, very Bonnie and Clyde, right? But just the, the, the effects work of the squibs, the, um, the blood, uh, the fact that they have Tommy guns, um, and when James Conn gets out of the car and has that sort of Bonnie and Clyde moment where he's getting riddled with bullets, uh, that, uh, when I went to this, that screening recently, that revival screening, uh, that got groans from people, from a contemporary audience who, who today, of course, would be used to, um, just uh, as graphic stuff, but, but much more realistic use of squibs or much more, um, frank, frankly, much more, um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, people getting shot with firearms in movies that is, uh, more likely to be seen as glorifying it, where there it's just uh, it's just ugly. This is one of um, my favorite scenes in the movie, and it has to do with uh, not so much Brando, but I love the way that. Um, you know, of all the people that have scenes with Brando, I think Duval is really the best because he knows that he seems to know that people are going to be looking at Brando. And so he his reactions to the things that uh, Tom Hayden's reactions to the things that Don says during this this encounter uh, uh, are, you know, like so many of the great performances in this movie are underplayed. But um I think Duval, for the first time, gives Tom, you know, think of, of the um, the encounter Tom has at the beginning of the movie with Waltz. And now look at his demeanor here. We, we see, we've heard that Tom is like a son to the Don, which means that Sonny is like a brother to him. So he's he's sad and scared, and he doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news, but his role in this enterprise is to be exactly that. Um, yeah, I, I love Brando's sort of the way he breaks down here. It's, it's really, um, he was, he was really, uh, you know, in real life he was, um, I mean, all those stories that Coppola and others tell about, especially in his later years, Brando being difficult on the set, Brando being uh, sort of a, a trickster. Um, I mean, he, he was an asshole to a certain degree. <laughs> I mean, I, I call it, I mean, they describe those stories. I, I, uh, we had to hold, stop shooting on Apocalypse Now for two days because Marlon, you know, didn't like the color of his socks. You know, I mean, uh, it, it be stuff that that level of inanity and um that i call that being an asshole but he was also a, a tortured guy and um you know, i've read a couple biographies of him he was very tortured and and you know very in touch um you know he came up during the when psychoanalysis kind of started to take sway and he went to analysis and he was someone who was very in touch with his own sort of psychohistory and suffering and uh, so it's, uh, it probably helped him in scenes like that. This scene was 
paid homage to in the sopranos uh with uh, where they come down to plan a funeral with this undertaker uh, character who also had a mustache so finally bonacera is called upon to to have uh you know the favor uh, he, he's called in for the favor um that's uh, a that's a horrible comb over that Bonacera has uh, that that make that oh that would make him the most tragic character in the movie frankly yeah that's just uh, you know when they slick it down against the skin like that it just uh it looks like the hair loops around his head and then i mean the the only comb over that i've seen that's worse than that is one of the uh uh, I think the mayor of Munchkinland has a comb over that is just um, uh, worse than that, you know. Look how they massacred my boy is... is uh, I wonder if that was the best take because <laughs> that they use for that. I always, when, he, when he says, look how they massacred my boy, I always, think, I always think that given that it's Brando, he could have given a slightly less um, the line reading uh, is, I expect a different kind of line reading from Brando um, never liked that line reading so we hear that he's he's gonna teach her English um, you know suggesting that he's of course making plans to bring her home with him and uh, uh, and the whole teaching her to drive is is also an interesting i mean it's so that you know we can have the death scene of course but it's also just a, an interesting that he was teaching her to um be an independent not be an independent woman but you know um the place of women in during these this period the 1940s the place of women in the United States was slightly more progressive than in Sicily uh, and uh, you know it's like uh, Kay who is obviously educated and able to drive herself and uh, Apollonia would have to um, be more of an independent woman so to speak so just as he it's, it's always one of the more um, funny things that just as he learns about Sonny dying, uh, he gets the news. Um, they knock off Apollonia too. With almost no time, one from the other, you know, between one and the other, um, in the movie's time frame. I mean, he's living in this big house with, I mean, the fact that someone here had con obviously conspired against him is predictable because it looks like, you know, he's got, he's got a posse or, or, you know, a crew of people tending to him. He's, he's got, uh, living in this big house. People obviously know he's there. He's marching through the streets on his mar on his wedding day. What the fuck do you expect? We got a little lens, fa lens flare here. 
but that's a nice shot that we had just that little shot of the guy eating and the the light bulb and Michael uh, it's sun drenched outside when Michael comes into that darkened room it's a sort of Gordy Willis uh, moment there once again Michael being perceptive he he sort of just before it happens he realizes it's going to happen Well, here we have the uh, the wonderful meeting, and this this sort of there's a lot of um, not self-referential, but I mean there's there's parallel scenes in in Godfather Two. I mean when they have that scene with uh, Michael at the meeting, I think Hyman Roth is there, and they present some sort of award in the shape of a telephone, and it's actually kind of funny sort of mirrors this scene where uh, we actually have some nice uh, camera movement as uh, the heads of the five families. It's nice that we see them and that they're, uh, it, it concretizes this idea of the five families, that, that they have this, this uh, United Nations summit, uh, this, this, you know, uh, Yalta conference uh, to end the war. Um, Now, Barzini's the one that, that speaks up here. I uh, notice he's at the head of the table, uh, foregrounded by an orange. <laughs> uh, and he says, we all know that he's a, a wise and a modest man. And um, this is the second reference that's uh, being made by someone. The first time was Virgil Salazzo. Second reference being made to uh, politicians uh, being in the pocket of Don Corleone. So we have, um, and we have this suspicion and, and, and this veiled, also in this meeting, this veiled kind of jealousy or envy that the other, the other Dons have for Don Corleone. Um, uh, you know, uh, envy for the politicians. He has uh, like so many coins in his pocket. Uh, uh, envy for his power. He seems to be one of the more powerful Dons. And also in stature. You notice that uh, the way the heads of the other five families are cast, uh, Don Corleone, played by... Sorry about that. Just moving my mic. You notice that Don Corleone, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, played by Brando here, is also in stature, seems to be slightly taller, um, bigger uh, than the other Dons. The little swipe at communism here is funny, and it also gives us the, um, gives us this uh, kind of little bit of a sense that we're in the late 40s, early 50s here, right? 
um, just the fact that that's in the zeitgeist that it's made its way so much that it's made its way into the mafia meeting here. So this this idea of making a half measure with the drugs um, in ma a lot of mafia movies, uh, you have this and um, from the, the sort of books I've read. Um, this is actually consistent with what a lot of attitudes at least were for many years in, in uh, organized crime, which is that uh, drugs is not just a nasty business, but uh, it, it wasn't so much the mandatory sentences and the way they um, uh, the DEA likes busting people for, you know, it wasn't so much uh, as suggested in Goodfellas, they suggest that it's it's all you know the long sentences that they they. It's really uh, from what I a book I read, it was really a lot to do with the drug trade is sort of an international thing up from South America or the Middle East, you know, trafficking in and and you have to deal with um, uh, people that you. Uh, often can't control who they are, what they do, how many fingers are in the pot. And it's, it's a, it's a risky business because of you, you deal with people that you sort of can't uh, see half the time. So that, that had to do with it too. But this, this is very realistic from what I understand, this idea that they um, are resistant to, to getting involved in that. And also the old school nature of the men in this room. When Michael becomes the Don, it's important that we see the heads of the five families here, right? It's important that we see um, how old they are and see how old Vito is. Because Michael will is so young. I like I like Brando here. Uh, if he should get hit by a bolt of lightning, you know he's um, he has an intensity in this scene that he brings to the character that that um, we don't see from Vito in other places in the movie. What allows uh, Don Corleone to be effective here is not just his demeanor, his um, sort of gentlemanly uh, demeanor, but also his track record. The fact that his word is his bond. Um, he, uh, he, he makes an assurance. Uh, in, he has made assurances in the past that he's followed through on. And so he has a, a you know, within, within this underworld... And according to the ethics of that underworld, uh, which are which are um, alarming at many at many points, uh, he is a good man. He is a trustworthy man within the context of this underworld. Uh, this shot here with the uh, where they're in the backseat of this car and Brando on the right, it's it's the uh, of course the on the waterfront arrangement, right? The, the I could have been a contender speech where he's in that car, you know, on the right. And that's not the, the tenor of the scene he has there with Duval, but it is it is uh, always it is kind of cool. So look at this um, just as uh, Apollonia 
um, was Michael first saw her sort of um, shepherding kids down a path, right? In that maternal uh, moment. Um, so too, the first time he sees he sees Kay again, so too is she um, working with children, uh, some sort of kindergarten teacher or uh, lunch lady. Uh, she wouldn't be a lunch lady. Um, but you know, and you notice when he, uh, reunites with Kay here, uh, albeit, um, tentative, he says he's working for his father. That's great. Albeit, uh, tentatively reunites with Kay here. Um, you know, the, just the, the actual palette of the movie changes the, um, this environment they're in, this almost suburban environment, uh. And, of course, Pacino's um, wardrobe changes when he returns from Italy. Uh, they, they did a couple things, I believe, um, to make him seem slightly older than the character was before. But uh, mostly it's done with, with wardrobe and with the performance. Um, Michael is um, more direct with Kay. And... When five years, he says in five years that the family will be totally legitimate. That is, um, and I think it's, I, if I remember, it's made much more clear in the book. Um, but that is, uh, he's knowingly, knowingly lying to Kay. He doesn't himself believe that. That is a, uh, uh, the, the efforts to legitimize the family that come from Michael uh, uh, or to quote unquote legitimize the family's operations that come from Michael later in the saga are not, I mean, the, what he means by legitimate is, is not strictly, uh, you know, uh, legal. It's that certain business interests are going to be kept, uh, legitimate, uh, truly legitimate within the, within the law and not, um, uh, blemished with any kind of mafia involvement or skimming off the top, as Mo Green will say, or racketeering, or um, that the that the Corleone family family will have business interests that will be um, segregated. But the the idea that uh, the family will be completely legitimate, or that the they'll they'll sort of retire from this organized crime thing, is uh, is a uh, no. He's knowingly misleading Kay. As we watch Brando here in his Mr. Rogers sweater. Um, and this resembles, uh, if you have the special edition Blu-rays or something, uh, the box set, you might see the, uh, or it's online too, uh, you might see the screen tests or some sort of wardrobe tests or, or rehearsals that they did with Brando. And uh, this scene sort of resembles that. It, it, it's just Brando and, and um, Coppola describes it. At one point in his own uh, interviews that he's done, uh, it's just Brando kind of walking around. Again, the passage of time marked by that television now, that that primitive television behind Michael. Um, but but uh, it resembled Brando sort of walking around, um, uh, sort of puttering around as in character, picking up things, eating things, saying things, uh, improvising uh, exchanges. Fascinating stuff.
Michael, assuming the spot behind the behind the desk is um, while the Don sort of um, again putters around is uh, one of my favorite kind of little moments in the movie where he just casually walks behind the desk and um, announces uh, one of my favorite plot points too, which is that uh, Tom will no longer be consigliere. The fact that Vito gives him his blessing is is um, the most important thing. Um, it's the thing that makes uh, the decisions, the first couple decisions that Michael has made there, um, that makes them stick. You see that Tom here doesn't, he just asks why he's out. He doesn't question that he's out. If the Don had not uh, sort of endorsed Michael uh uh, he, he might question the decision. He talks to him like a son here, right? This is where I think Brando really understands the character of Vito. He speaks to, he, you know, and, and boy, does De Niro get this in Godfather too. He, 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 Vito has this ability to speak to, uh, to people's emotions, not just to their situation. Uh, you see it when a, a old lady has a landlord who's giving her grief uh, or kicking her out or something, and she comes to a young Vito for help in Godfather Two, and he he uh, and then and then he deals with the landlord. But he, he has a way of of speaking to people that uh, I really do think speaks to their you know. Uh, speaks to their emotional concerns as well. He's a very empathic character. And Michael is much more pragmatic and, and a, a bit more of a colder character. Um, a bit more uh, Michael's ways when he runs the family are, uh, and I've had this thought before, uh, Michael's manner when he handles the family uh, are a bit more, you see Fredo has become a backslapper here, uh, but um I think they went a little overboard on the costuming, you know, they should let the wardrobe, you know, Fredo with the laser suit and the, the bellhops sort of roll their eyes at him because they're sick of his shit. They could have let Johnny Cazale's performance do it uh, and not sort of with the sunglasses and shit. I, sunglasses on actors in movies, um, I rarely approve of. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are times when characters should wear sunglasses, but uh, you know, you don't get to see the performance. It's it's like why you know it's like when why do uh, some poker players or card players choose to wear sunglasses? Well, uh, I from what I understand, it's so that uh, they it would be harder to read the their eyes or the what they're looking at or the expression that might be on their face. Mike, uh, Michael is much more, if you look at the way he um, runs the family versus the way Vito runs the family, right? Like, Michael's much more of a CEO uh, in his style. He's, um, and he's, but he's, he's diplomatic, but he's also aggressive. He's, he's sort of like Donald Trump with a less obnoxious personality, right? He's, he's, 
uh, much calmer and he's he's very direct about what he wants and what he expects and when he makes a deal he makes an offer he says things once if he has to discipline someone like he will Fredo at the end of this scene he he um, he does it uh, clearly and abruptly and and in a way that in uh, uh, it uh, says everything in a tone of voice uh, that is meant to end the discussion, right? We all know people like this, uh, whether they're expressing an opinion or instructing someone to do something or just in a conversation. Uh, you know, uh, they, I find the worst movie criticism, uh, movie critics do this, the worst of them. They, um, they write in a tone of voice that is sort of meant to end the discussion about a movie, uh, you know, like, like, uh, of course, the, some of the best movie critics write with that tone, too. Pauline Kale did. You see, Michael uh, is muscling, muscling uh, uh, Johnny Fontaine here. Uh, cashing in on the goodwill and the favors that the family has done for Johnny. He knows that. I mean, that's why the offer I can't refuse, the, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. That's why that's such a, a great line is because it, it captures the fact that it's not an offer, right? It's the you can't refuse part that is operative, right? <laughs> and so Johnny, Johnny can't not sign those papers. Uh, and Mike, Michael knows it. And he, he compels Johnny to do that in a way that his father is, that's different from his father. His father would have been much more um, soft power, you might say. So here's Mo Green, uh, my favorite character in the movie. Um, <laughs> he's just great when he does this hand clap thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, and again, with the ethnic epithet. Um, uh, the way Mo Green takes offense, you know, um, he's based on a real person uh, but uh, and uh, we we don't get Mo Green's real backstory until Hyman Roth uh, explains it in Godfather 2 um, but we even get a little bit of sort of um, narration from Mo Green here you don't have that kind of muscle anymore the the, Corleone, the Corleone family doesn't have this kind of influence um, and then Mo Green uh intimates that he could make a deal with Barzini. So again, Barzini kind of um, dipping his beak into the Corleone family's trough or, or planning to. I remember when I used to watch this movie with um, my my uh, dad uh, the couple times it came on TV years ago. and uh, Boy, this was years ago. Um, he... Uh, he always stuck up for Mo Green. He always said, well, you know, what Mo Green says is pretty pretty sensible, you know. He's got a business to run, and Fredo's an idiot, you know. I remember, even as a kid, I was like, well, yeah, but you don't have to hit anybody. You don't have to. <laughs> you can, you can quote-unquote, straighten him out without beating him up. Uh, uh, Fredo's appealing to, uh, to Tom is sort of funny. Uh, it shows that he just doesn't get it, that his brother's in charge. <laughs> you don't talk to a man like Mo Green like that. 
Now, Pacino's eyes here as he delivers this line are chilling. It's a famous line, don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. Uh, it's kind of a, the ever is sort of a, a weird foreshadowing of the fact that he will kill Fredo. Um, but, uh, and we see that Michael has a little son here in a Marine uniform for some reason. Uh, <laughs> did he just get back from Korea? What, what? I'm trying to figure out why they would dress the kid up as in a in an army or a, that's a marine uniform I guess. I'm trying to figure out why they would do that. Oh, it looks like a like a maybe it's a novelty outfit or something. This is a good time to get into um as we watch uh this famous scene We'll get the we'll get their pop scene. We'll get their pop. It's a good time to get into uh, the thing I said I was going to get into, which is the um, the way this movie has uh, perhaps more than any other American movie secured its status as a good movie, uh, a great movie. Uh, like I said, I believe at the outset, you know, when people talk about this movie. Uh, or when people make reference to good movies, they say, uh, well, uh, you know, that movie was good, but it's it's not, uh, you know, people need to stop talking like it's The Godfather or something. Uh, this movie is synonymous with a great movie. And uh, how is it that a movie achieves that status? Um, I have a Casablanca commentary that I also request that I'm doing, and I got into this topic on there, too. Uh, I haven't posted it yet, but we, I sort of gotten into this topic too of, you know, it really does interest me how movies go from a memorable movie or a good movie from the period to, um, this legendary status. And, and so many of the reasons why, you know, I'm in my praise of this movie that I've given so far, I mean, so many of the reasons that I'm, um, able to do that is because, I must admit, uh, like we all have, or many of us have, I've accepted that this is a great movie uh, from the outset. And um, it's often, sometimes with older movies, you don't even have the chance to really decide for yourself. It comes to you packaged, uh, sometimes literally, in a, in a DVD that says the greatest movie, you know, the, the blurbs on it, or, you know, the greatest movie ever, legendary. Um, it comes packaged to you as a great movie. So Michael has, uh, by the way, taken uh, the Don, uh, uh, his father Vito, sort of as conciliary. It's a couple things, anyway, that I think the Godfather um, does that have made it so legendary and so revered. Um, the obvious one is that um, I think by almost or by nearly everyone's standards, uh, except those who are either um, have a peculiar taste in movies, uh, what they like, what they don't like, or those who um, are simply obtuse, um, by any definition, it is, it is a exquisitely well-made, well-directed, well-acted, well-scripted, well-shot, 
well-sound-designed movie. You know, just at every level of movie making, I think we're we're seeing um, we're seeing uh, the height of what Hollywood could do at, at the time. So there, so there's an uh, in terms of the craftsmanship, the movie making, uh, and even the the, the storytelling. Uh, what I started talking about at the beginning, the way the story is told, the way uh, we meet characters early on and they come into play later. Nothing is wasted. Um, that aspect to the movie is, I think, a lot to do with uh, you know the, the undeniably um, well done. Ness of the movie, the ways in which it is just undeniably well done. Even people who hate the movie would have to admit, for example, that uh, certain elements of cinematography or storytelling or editing moves or um, or certain lines of dialogue are inspired and well done. Uh, so there's, as with most great movies, there's just an undeniable thing there. Um, but apart from that, I think. Uh, I would go back to what I said about uh, the era and the new Hollywood, the film school generation, the changes that were happening in movies at this time. Say, again, uh, the mid-60s to uh, 1979, 1980, right? Um, you look at how much Hollywood movies changed in terms of not just uh, how graphic they became, uh, how... Um, uh, how uh, no longer uh, many of them were um, abandoning some of the old formulas and, and they, it was less formulaic movies. Uh, and I think a good, a very good metric is movies that were winning Best Picture. Uh, if you look at the way they changed during the 60s um, versus the 50s or the 40s, uh, you had a, a certain kind of movie, even an X-rated movie, Midnight Cowboy. Uh, so these, this is a, a lot of change in a very short, relatively short period of years. Um, and I think The Godfather is, uh, it's easy to forget now, but it is a, a new kind of, uh, it, it represents that new kind of realism in movies. And it represents, um, you know, arguably the best of that. You know, the, the it, when you look at the Easy Riders and the Midnight Cowboys, and the one flew over the cuckoo's nests. Um, it, it is the one that is most is Brando's wonderful death scene. I remember seeing that lampooned by Belushi on Saturday Night Live in the seventies. Um, it is sad that the little kids there. Yeah, it's a great death scene. Um. But I, I do think that it, it doesn't just represent the changes that were happening in films at that time. It represents uh, the height of what was really great about what was changing in Hollywood. Uh, a third thing you might say, the reason why it's, it's become the godfather and it's become, you know, I think on the last sight and sound list it was uh, still ranked quite high. Um, I think, and I want to say this in a way that makes sense. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I do think that the, I mean, it seems like a, a reductive or a trite thing to point out, but I think that the, um, the memorable lines of dialogue, the memorable uh, certain scenes that are just, once you see them, you're never going to forget. Um, uh, make him an offer he can't refuse. The horse's head. Um, Mo Green shot through the eye. Uh, leave the, I just saw Clemenza on screen. Uh, leave the gun, take the cannolis. Uh, even certain images, uh, the image of the cat in Brando's lap, the image of Michael uh, 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 with the swollen cheek. Um, these are these are things that are not easily forgotten. And there's just one last thing I'd say in, in terms of how it's it's become so beloved. Um, mafia movies had been around. Organized crime movies had been around. Uh, gangster movies had been around almost since the dawn of the dawn of movies. Here's uh, one of the final uh, betrayers uh, uh, played by Vigoda orchestrating his betrayal. But yeah, um, just the last a last point about how it's attained the the lasting significance. So, gangster movies had been around, right? Um, I mean, from Jimmy Cagney even during the silent era, um, uh, mafia gangster. I mean, this was always depicted in films. I do feel that The Godfather was the first movie. Uh, or at least the first great movie that I don't want to say made it cool, <laughs> but um, by by making you know by telling a a story that was um, where the there was no you know there was no character arc that made them good uh, that made bad people go to good. Or there was no, uh, it wasn't a morality tale like Little Caesar, you know, uh, Edward G. Robinson dies at the end. Mother of mercy, is this what happened to Rico? You know, it, it, it's this, uh, the old gangster, uh, you know, the public enemy, James Cagney. I mean, they, they were morality tales. Uh, 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 yeah, there's even a, a prologue uh, that reads on the screen or com- text that comes on the screen before uh uh, I think the public enemy or little Caesar where, uh, it says, uh, you know, these gangster movies are about bad people who do bad things and we don't want people to be bad, you know? Um, and the Godfather is a, a gangster mafia story that doesn't moralize about these guys. It trusts the audience to realize that they're bad and that this is conduct, you know, whether it's murdering or racketeering or lying um, that this is conduct that is not uh, good. It trusts us to know that. It doesn't try and convince us not to be like it. But at the same time, the depiction of these guys, the way they speak, um, you know, whether it's Brando or uh, Sonny, um, they're likable in many ways as characters, 
And they're also, you know, for lack of a better word, they're cool. They're cool in a way that uh, sometimes gangsters weren't always portrayed as cool. Or if they were, they learned their lesson in the end or something. Um, and I think that sort of cool, that coolness, uh, was what caught on initially. And, and part of the reason the movie got so big is that uh, people just got hooked into these characters And also, you know, if we're being honest about any movie that has attained this level of, as we watch this uh, baptism, um, any movie that's attained this stature, I mean, this level of just uh, the laurels and being on all the top ten lists and um, being the favorite movie of uh, lots and lots of people, you know, um, the movie has become this this sort of this uh, giant thing, this 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 um, cultural marker. Anytime that happens, I think hype has a lot to do with it. Now you can say that, hey, uh, look, I, I think Godfather and just like many other great movies lives up to the hype. I think it holds up. I think it. I mean, you can say I think it holds up. I think it lives up to the hype. I think the hype is warranted. I mean, often hype is warranted, but um, even if you believe that, and I do think Godfather holds up, and I do think, you know, uh, it lives up to its reputation in lots and lots of ways and in the ways that count, but you can't deny that hype plays a role. Um, you know, again, you know, a, a 16-year-old kid uh, today in 2013 who um, is thinking about becoming a filmmaker or um, is just interested in movies and sees The Godfather for the first time is not just seeing the movie raw uh, so to speak I mean right, right uh, he or she is seeing the movie um, literally packaged as I said coming to him or her with um this whole reputation wrapped in its own reputation. And so uh, the act of discovery is very different. You know, I, I can't, I can't, I can't really enjoy Citizen Kane the way people, uh, even in the 50s, like it was made in the early 40s, even in the 50s, the way people even in the 50s enjoyed Citizen Kane. Um, I have to, I have to, I have to take it with all its baggage. I have to take it with all its um, uh, reputation. So uh, I think Godfather's name, there's Mo Green, shot in the eye. I think the fact that the name is uh, synonymous with a great movie is really, um, you know, put in people's head. And that has a lot to do with it. I happen to be someone that thinks it lives up. To that reputation. I've been talking over one of the great sequences, the cross-cutting, right, between Michael um, uh, finally saying he, he uh, of course, um, as a, <laughs> a cop aiming like that, um, well, he's not, a, I mean, Michael saying he renounces Satan, he renounces evil, Michael uh, 
bringing this new life that he's created, this son, uh, uh, baptizing him in, into the church, with, which is, um, uh, for many Italians, an important staple of uh, cultural uh, uh, presence, the Catholic Church. While he baptizes his son in, in the church, uh, he has ordered, uh, uh, as he will say at the end here, he, he is he's settling all family business uh, roughly the same time, uh, uh, taking out uh, uh, other mob uh, people from the five families, um, assuring the Corleone family uh, more power and control of the streets, and it's the first big act uh, of him as as the official boss of the family. Uh, the not the acting boss. The old man is now dead, um, and it's really an inspired sequence. Um, it's not just the irony, and it's not just because it's it perfectly reflects Michael's duplicity and his mendacity and and his his double life you know he, the fact that he has to be a father and a, and a husband and that he seems you know all things considered he seems a in at least in some ways a devoted father a, a doting father and a and a especially given the time period i mean he seems like a good husband uh in some ways it's not just that it perfectly captures all that. It, it, it's, it's also that, um, the, uh, oh, what, what do you call it? Uh, that every, every death scene, Mo Green shot through the eye. The other guy, you know, there, there's, he comes up the stairs and he's in there and Clemens and he's got the rifle and, uh, in the, in the box, it, it Everybody gets their own special kind of uh, way of getting whacked. Uh, that's really uh, what I like about that. There's Willie Chi-Chi again. So this um, Abe Vigoda's betrayal and the equanimity with which he... Uh, greets his his i mean he knows he's walking to his death here um for this betrayal um the the sort of the idea of it's not business it's personal this uh this uh, this is only business right uh not business it's personal um is sort of really captured by uh Vigoda's demeanor who he doesn't cry and beg for his life he says uh Hey, he he tried. Well, it's the whole theme in the one of the themes in the movie of, of favors, right? Doing favors, calling in favors. Um, hey, do you think you could uh, get me off the hook, Tom, for old time's sake? You know, calling in a favor? No, nah, not this time. Did I? say that that other scene was my favorite in the movie this might be my favorite um <laughs> just because uh johnny russo actually is uh not bad uh with pacino here uh but every little move that pacino makes here is um i mean we've really seen how far this character has come now um 
yeah see i like i like the way um the reason carlo is getting upset when he hears that stracci cuneo barzini tatalia that michael's taking them all out is that uh he he realizes that if those i think he realizes that if those big dogs have been sent to the pound uh that uh there's no way his goose isn't cooked uh and if i had another animal metaphor in there i would uh, I would certainly use it. <laughs> no, I mean he realizes that boy. If if Michael's done all this, that I'm I'm done for. Um, this is really quite. Um, Oh, what always struck me here is that just how well planned Michael's ruse is. He says, look, I'm putting you on a plane to Vegas. Here's a plane ticket. Uh, but of course, he knows he's not doing that. The, the assassins are waiting in the car. Um, Michael just needs the truth from him about whether it was Tatalia or Barzini. And then he doesn't need Carlo for anything anymore. It's interesting that Sonny's pledge to kill Carlo um, if he touched Connie again is sort of made good on by Michael in a, in a perverse kind of cruel way. Um, I mean, this whole thing about the car is going to take you to the airport. Here's a plane ticket. I'll call your wife. Um, this is really nice. Get out of my sight. <laughs> Yeah, you see, it's this whole, he thinks he's getting on a plane. And, of course, Connie's husbands will get, throughout the saga, will, it's implied that they get progressively more sort of pathetic. As Godfather 2 begins, we have Carl, who's an earnest but sort of half-goofy dude that speaks out of turn. And, of course, Michael does not like that yeah you see like that kind of realism of the windshield breaking as as uh, carlo kicks it while he's being strangled to death um and the car's moving while they do that i've never noticed that either until now the car's moving while they do that um it's just that that kind of um, violent realism was anew uh in 1972 it wasn't a guarantee if you went to uh, even a movie that had violence in it, that you would see something that uh, that resembled real violence that was ugly and sloppy sometimes. And, you know, the fat man... Uh, uh, Luca Brasi, when he's strangled, his eyes almost popping out of his head. Uh, you know, it's just... Very realistic. I, I almost wish, and now the movie makes a point, uh, almost deliberately so, of bringing us into the world of uh, the mafia and these characters. And so, by definition, since we're 
bring broad into the world of what these men do and the, the segregation of the women in their lives kept at a distance. You know, keeping the women at a distance is, uh, you, you might argue, um, necessary for the storytelling to be what it's trying to be. Um, and so we, we have this shot between the two women. Uh, we, they're not photographed in a way where we're empathizing with them necessarily. This is is now Michael's story. Now, um, I don't think it's, I think lying is wrong under um, nearly any, uh, nearly all circumstances, except for narrow hypotheticals that you could dream up in which clearly lying would be, you know, you don't tell the Nazis that Anne Frank is upstairs, etc. But um, given the fact that uh, he did kill her husband, uh, and Connie, who was a battered woman, um, in many ways should be glad to be rid of him, um, doesn't justify the murder. But, I mean, Connie, if you're going to kill your sister's husband in cold blood, then lying uh, to her and having her think that you didn't do it might be saving her even more grief. <laughs> doesn't make it okay, right? Doesn't make it okay, but it, it, there is, one doesn't want to say there's virtue in it, but there, there is a good in it, right? I mean, there, it, 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 it creates less, slightly less suffering in a way. Um, it's so fascinating to me that if you just look at it in the abstract, the Godfather ends with uh, uh, a bunch of lies, a series of lies. And, of course, the famous construct here of, I will let you ask me this one time about my affairs. You know, this, this idea of he is now this, this um, um, almost uh, uh, exalted cleric that can grant pardons and exceptions of the rules, uh, uh, even to his own wife. Um, he swears on his honor that he didn't kill Carlo. Um, he swore to Connie that, that he didn't kill Carlo. He swore to Carlo, or he assured Carlo that he wouldn't kill her. Uh, him, rather. Uh, Carlo is a him. He told Carlo he wouldn't kill him. Uh, he uh, shook hands with uh, Barzini and some of the other gangsters and the five families at the, at the funeral and then turned around and moved on them. Uh, here's the famous shot with Michael in the office where, of course, Gordy Willis shooting through doors, as he loves to do. The ring, the hand being kissed, Don Corleone. He's uh, taken his father's place. I always wonder why this character is motivated to close the door, what's going to be going on in there. But um, the movie ends focused on K, right? Focused on sort of uh, the movie ends with the door closing and then being separated by the the life that Michael has chosen for them. And that's the other thing. And before I was saying uh, many times throughout the commentary, Michael has to Michael is choosing uh, not the American dream life, not to be on the track he was on, but Michael is choosing this life of of as a mob uh, associate and now mob boss for himself. Well, that's not really true, is it? Michael is, you know, especially given the 
the gender roles of, of uh, and norms of this period being depicted, Michael is uh, is the quote unquote head of his household, the man of the house. Uh, he is choosing a life for he, his wife, and his children as well. And we see that play out in Godfather too. You know, he 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 endangers his family. They they are shot at, in their in their own home. So, um, but but to get back to what I was saying before, so that's interesting. But to get back to what I was saying before, it really is kind of cool, isn't it? That the the Godfather ends with a series of lies, and uh, you know, to kind of loop everything together and and end the commentary where I kind of began it. Uh, uh, we spoke at the beginning about um, the Godfather, uh, Don Corleone, played by Brando having, you know, despite operating outside the law, uh, the, the civic law, uh, the secular law, he, he has a code, right? He says, uh, that's not justice. Your daughter is still alive. He says, uh, uh, you know, uh, we don't do murder. Uh, we're not murderers. Um, he has a, a code that he abides by where if you kill someone, it's not really murder. Uh, he has a sense of justice that he applies within this within this uh, mafia construct, this, this mafia apparatus. Uh, and at the end, uh, from Michael's point of view, according to his the worldview that he accepts when he becomes head of the family and decides to be to lead this this family, uh, the lies that he tells his wife the lies that he tells his sister, the lies that he tells Carlo are justified. They are morally justified, uh, or at least ethically justified, um, by the necessities put upon him uh, in his position as a mafia don. Um, he, he can tell the priest at the, at the christening, I guess it's called a christening, right? Um, he can tell the priest, uh, he can take the vow that he rejects Satan, even as his henchmen are, um, are, are killing people left and right. Um, because he feels that those killings are not personal. It's just business. It's the, it's the necessity of the business he's in. And so instead of not personal, you can say that it's not, it's not a moral issue, right? And, and uh, once again, I, I think the, um, the Sopranos really uh, does this really well. Well, they just uh, over and over again in The Sopranos uh, and over and over again in The Godfather, you see that um, it's okay for me to kill. It's okay for me to steal. It's okay for me to do this because this is the business I'm in. These are the rules. I, I play by the rules of this business and, and uh, certain kinds of stealing, certain kinds of hurting people are within the rules. So what do you want from me? Um, so the whole the whole uh, duplicity of that, the whole phoniness of that, the whole uh, house of cards of that ethical, that ethical house of cards uh, is just shown for what it is at the end of, of the Godfather. So the idea that it, uh, that some idiots have that it glorifies uh, uh, the mafia is silly. I think, as I said before, it, it does show them as cool it shows that they're cool as characters, right? As characters. It, the, the movie never styles itself in a way where uh, it says uh, being a gangster is 
cool or killing people is cool. Um, it, it's always the characters and the way they behave and the way they, you know, it's always, it's always character stuff that's, that's quote-unquote cool. But uh, that's really what sticks with me upon this viewing, and, and uh, maybe it does with you too. Just the, the remarkable way that it ends with a series of lies, a series of deceptions, and a series of cruelties that um, the Don, Michael, doesn't recognize as cruelties, as lies, as deceptions. They are simply business. They are the business he's in, as Hyman Roth will say. In Godfather 2, this is the business we've chosen. He's talking about Mo Green being killed, as we see at the end of this film. Uh, he said, I didn't complain because this was the business we're in. Um, you know, the, the most uh, unspeakable kinds of atrocities are, are written off as a business expense and um, in, in this movie and in this saga. And to suggest that that is somehow um, glorifying the mafia is, uh, like I said, silly. At any rate. What a uh, what a great suggestion! Thanks again for uh, thanks again to Tommy for suggesting it. I hope you enjoyed. Well, I know you enjoyed The Godfather. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this commentary. Thanks for watching it with me. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.